Thomas. Buonasera. Hello. How is everybody? Nice to see everybody. And now let's dive in into Ukraine, which, yeah, much to discuss, especially if you're an air defense officer in Crimea, because you had a really, really horrible week. And it's going to get worse. I was just about to say this. Just imagine if you were to be in charge of the air defense uh, surrounding Sevastopol, that has been bad. If you were in charge of the air defense of the Western District of uh, Crimea, including Yevpatoria, this was a bad week. If you're now sitting and you're in charge of the air defense of Junkoi, you must be very jittery because something is about to happen. Yes. We can't really give away certain things, you know, because um, classified Ukraine doesn't need us telling stuff that they are planning. But Ukraine is preparing, shaping the battlefield for something in Crimea. And they are right now trying to signal to the Russian that it's untenable to hold the peninsula because Ukraine has fire control over it and can strike anything anywhere in that peninsula. And if you're a Russian Navy admiral, you might start to think that you might have to move all your ships out of there because, you know, if Ukraine can hit a ship in dry dock, it can also hit a ship that is docked at a pier in the bay. Unless by luck the Russian ship between the Ukrainian Su-24 taking off and firing a storm shadow and the missile hitting just in that two hours, the Russian ship leaves the port. Ukraine has now signaled to the Russians, we can strike and hit and sink your ship in Sevastopol Bay. Which basically makes it for the Russians untenable to keep their navy there. But since these are Russians and these are idiots, they are going to keep it there until the first Russian ship is sunk at the pier. Then they're going to scramble and move them out to the Russian harbors that are out of range. Now, they've uh, they've now hit vessels in the harbor. And interestingly enough, this is exactly what we discussed once with... um, um, Jennifer Hodges said at some point in time the Ukrainians would be able to contest the harbor and make it untenable. The Russian forces already know the Ukrainians are preparing further, um, say, seaborne UAVs, that there is significant missile capacity already at hand. It is very likely that attackers are coming soon, by now, despite all the Bruhaha and procrastination and whatnot. This is not going to get any better for them. What do you think the Russians will do in the coming weeks? What are the Russians gonna do in the coming weeks? I mean, as to air defense, you... that's that, let's start with that. <laughs> no, just 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 <laughs> out of principle. Let's out of principles. What the Russians are gonna do is stupid shit. That's in their nature. I mean, you are being warned by people not to put your uh, ships in dry dock in Crimea. And the Russians were like, yeah, okay, then let's put a submarine next to it. So they're always making their troubles worse. So the Russians are going to go again doing their troubles 
and make them worse. So I look forward for the Russians, you know, birthing three ships next to each other on one pier to cut down on the trouble of loading and unloading, you know, because then you have all the three ships next to each other and you can quickly load from one to the other. So it's going to be a, a fun time to target that. Second thing, attack camps are uh, a go because out of German government sources, Taurus is being integrated with the Ukrainian fighter jets right now. That means if Taurus is being integrated, it has been signed off, obviously. Taurus will only be signed off if attack camps are signed off. So the question is not when, if, but the question is when we will see the first attack camps and Taurus strikes. Will it be a few days? Will it be a few weeks? We don't know, but it will be soon. The United States military finally has given up bitching about their inventory for the attack camps. And so now there is an availability of attack camps and they will come. Also, there's uh, Air Force, US Air Force missiles that could be compatible, US Navy missiles that are compatible in theory with the Scalp and Storm Shadow missile systems. So you would have to do some integrations, but you could, you know, once Storm Shadow and Scalp run out, place those, I don't want to name the missile right now, but there's an integration going on. So that could happen. And, you know, the Ukrainians are never going to run out of long-range missiles to strike targets in Crimea. So your air defense systems, your ammunition depots, your key logistics routes, your headquarters, your signal stations, your ships on the dock, everything is going to get hit sooner or later. And we're looking forward to that, we all, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I'm just wondering as to um, if, for example, their own layered air defense system is now not working anymore. The last hit on the the integrated S-400 complex has uh, robbed them of certain capabilities. They may not be able to coordinate their air defense on the western side of Crimea as much as they were able to beforehand. So it's not just the Taurus and it's not just the attackants. It's essentially every single tool the Ukrainians have at their disposal, which sooner rather than later will make the life of the Russians untenable in terms of defending their key assets, be it now at this point in time, the vessels with which they obviously typically threaten Ukrainian civilian targets, albeit closer and rather sooner. Also, targets which they need in order to defend the access to the peninsula. How do you rate the chances of Ukraine in making a leap for Crimea before year end? Very high. The thing is that the Ukrainians always said since at least last December that their main target for any offensive will be liberating Crimea. Because once you have Crimea, which is the price, it's the only region of absolute value. And to liberate Crimea, you have to liberate the South, which means that you have the two key regions. And once you have that, the Russians hold a little triangle in the East between Donetsk and the Russian border which is worth nothing. It's, everything is destroyed. People have already left. And there's mostly forests and flooded mines. So the Ukrainians always let it be known that their main goal is to um, liberate Crimea. It has been much slower going than expected, right? 
the idea was that the Ukrainians draw the Russians forward, strike them with long-range artillery and HIMARS systems, which have a much higher precision compared to Russian systems. And the idea was that uh, when the Russians are exhausted, their reserves are exhausted and destroyed, the Ukrainians will search forward and liberate Crimea. The Russian reserves have been deployed much, much slower than expected. And the Ukrainians have much more trouble destroying them than expected. Uh, it's still going to happen, just a question of time. And four years end, I would hope much sooner because, you know, you want the Russians to have this feeling of being losers before Christmas time. Yep. About a half an hour ago, um, initial reports came out that Nisfeland was a hit, which is essentially the southern, how should I put this, the southern edge of the air defense coverage, where yet another S-400 supposedly is supposed to be, I mean, is supposed to be stationed, and covering the southern access route to Sevastopol, which makes it very interesting, because that would mean the third this would be the third high-value target surrounding Sevastopol. Um, they do this now every day. Ukraine will not let up. They are actually increasing the frequency of their hits. Yep. They are systematically degrading, annihilating Russian air defense systems along Crimea's western coast. The Ukrainians are trying to open a gap through which then more drones, suicide drones, kamikaze drones, loitering munitions, long-range drones, cruise missiles, and so on, can fly into Crimea and strike targets. The Ukrainians, as it should be in such a campaign, are going first for the most valuable targets, the Russian S-400 and S-300 systems. After they have destroyed those, which have the best radars and the longest range missiles, the Ukrainians are going to go after their medium range systems like Buk and so on and destroy them too. At some point, the Russians will have either a huge gap in their air defense there, which might even open up the possibility of using TB2 Bayraktars to have a strike and observation capability of Crimea's coast. We will see. And what the Russians then can do is either bring in reserves from Russia that are guarding Putin's palaces or bring in reserves or units from the front, which actually right now are guarding the front. So Ukraine is degrading and annihilating in a completely systematic, precise manner, Russian air defenses, just as they are destroying Russian artillery systems and reserve units. The thing is that, again, as we have discussed before, NATO would use air power and thus, it would be much, much faster than Ukraine, which has to use drones and underground teams to spot these targets. And then they have to use one or two cruise missiles to strike them. So it takes everything takes more time than we would like to or than we expected. But Ukraine is doing a very, very systematic approach to degrading Russian systems, to opening gaps in the Russian air defenses in Crimea, exactly as they're trying to open gaps in, Ukraine, in Russia's front in the south. The key aspect here being that all of this is methodic. And it's a consequence of what is available to them and what's, what their limitations are. But they're extremely methodic as to how to approach this in order to attract the Russian side, to thin out their capabilities, 
and make it untenable for them to remain on Crimea. We do not really know how many, I mean, at least outside of the uh, ZSU, we do not really know what the estimate, what a good estimate is for the troop concentration on Crimea. But maybe we can speculate a little bit as to what the Russians actually have available and what their logistics would look like if and when the peninsula were to be attacked. How do you see this? Sorry, I forgot to switch on the microphone. I switch it off when I'm not speaking to not disturb the other speakers. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, good question. Let's answer. And then I figure out that I was so smitten by the answer. I forgot to press the Don't button. Don't worry. But that rarely ever happens when I ask you a question. So it's fine. So carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Um, um, yeah. I love your questions. Um, what was the question? Oh, guys! As they are, no, as they are methodically um, attriting the uh. Russian forces. Um, let, let, let's let's scoop it around. So they're methodically attriting the Russian forces. How do you see, given the fact that we do not really know the troop concentration, the amount of troops, also the quality of the troops the Russians actually have on the Crimean Peninsula at this point in time. Yes, there's a concentration in Sevastopol. We could talk about what is available in Jankoi and how they've actually dug in. But as we do not have perfect figures, only this year, you will have them. How do you rate uh, the capacity of Ukraine and what would they have to deal with on the Crimean Peninsula? How would the Russians have to supply themselves, what their logistics options would be at the likes? The thing is that the Russians don't have many troops left in Crimea. There is a lot of locals in Crimea who support Ukraine and report Russian troop movements over apps that you can download and then report Russian troop movements to the Ukrainian military intelligence. There's a ton of Crimean Tartars and local Ukrainians who are in a partisan movement. There is quite some Ukrainian, I'm sure there's quite some Ukrainian special forces behind the Russian lines observing. And the Russians are building defense lines and they're building trenches along the beaches, but you never, ever see any Russian units there. I think the Russians have everything on the southern front trying to hold it. And the Russians hope that in case when Ukraine should break through in the south, the Russians will have time to bring troops from the front in an orderly retreat from the southern front into Crimea to defend it. Now, an orderly retreat requires an amount of discipline, a quality of leadership, and a quality of troops, especially, you know, being steady and not panicky, that the Russian military doesn't possess. Once the Ukrainians break through, the Russians are going to run chaotically, they're going to create traffic jams, and then they're going to get fucked by high mars, by artillery, and so on. So I doubt that Russia has a lot of troops in Crimea. I doubt that Russia can bring or save a lot of troops to defend Crimea. And once Ukraine has managed to break into northern Crimea, the only city you need to take and hold is Jankoi. Once you have that city, Crimea is completely impossible for the Russians to defend. Because when you have Jankoi, all the Russian front in the south, in the rear, basically, right now, the Russians can use some kilometers along the coast in the south 
which is outside of HIMARS range, you know. Once the Ukrainians are in Jankoi, every piece in the south is in HIMARS range. Also, once the Ukrainians are in Jankoi, everything in Crimea up to um, Simferopol is in HIMARS range. Now, if the ground-launched small diameter bombs finally arrive, which Boeing hasn't even gotten really started. Boeing started the production, but there are hiccups. So once those arrive, once you have Jankoi and ground-launched small diameter bombs arrive, everything in Crimea is in range. You can destroy every target. Also, Jankoi is the key railroad hub. The railway that comes from Kerch, the railway that comes from Melitopol, the railway that comes from Kherson, the railway that goes that comes from Simferopol and Sevastopol, they all go to Jankoi. Once you have that, the whole rail system in Crimea is blocked. The Russians cannot move anything by rail. The road connections, the one, the road that goes Kherson, Berekop, the road, the road that goes um Novakhakovka to Berekop and so on. The road from Melitopol, the road from Simferopol, the road from Kerch that goes north, they all go to Jankoi. Jankoi is the key railroad and road center node of all northern Crimea. Once you have that, yes, the Russians still can bring stuff in over the Kerch bridge if it's not destroyed until then. But the only road that remains open and out of range of HIMARS will be the road along the coast. Is it, Thomas, is it fair to say that taking Zhang Khoi, which will be defended, the Russians know their maps too. Yes, they may, some yeah. of them make stupid mistakes, but Zhang Khoi and Crimea, they know extremely well. This is an area which they focus on strategically, tactically, with their forces for a long, long time. So in order to take Zhang Khoi, you may have to make their escape untenable, as opposed to what yep. Sun Tzu always... You, you, the people who quote Sun Tzu, build the golden bridge and all that's bullshit, forget that. Let's go back to Clausewitz. Annihilate the enemy in the field and make them desperate, if I may summarize this sensibly. If you cut yep. off their possibility to exit via Sevastopol, if you cut off their possibility to exit easily through Kerch, and then you literally, by means of medium and long-range artillery and rocket artillery take out all their supplies and logistics. At some point in time, they will simply, utterly be unable to defend themselves. Is that a correct thesis, or would you say that there's other things which we need to take into account? Yes. Yes. I would, personally, I would prefer an operation where the Ukrainians cross the Dnieper, advance quickly to Berikop, and then strike from Perikop, which is the land bridge between Crimea and Ukraine, that they strike from Perikop to Jankoi. Because Jankoi, if you hold Jankoi and Perikop, let's say you hold this area, you have to the west the sea, you have to the east the sea, you have to the north the sea, with only two bridges, which Ukraine already has begun to destroy. So once you take the north of Crimea, to the south, where the Russians can attack, that's the only land area where the Russians can attack, you have only steppe. No trees, nothing to hide. You can see the Russians coming for 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers, and you can strike them with HIMARS and artillery on their move before they reach you. Also, if you strike from the Dnieper to Perikop, you have to hold that 
flank Dnieprot, let's say from Nova Kharkova to Berikop, you have to have a front and hold it. Basically, what you do, the Ukrainians are right now holding a front along the Dniepro. If they cross the Dniepro and make it to Jankoy, Perikop in that area, they just advance the front from the Dniepro to Perikop and add a new front south of Perikop and Jankoy. So they don't need that many troops extra to achieve this. And with that said, if at the same time the Ukrainian can break through somewhere further east, let's say where they are attacking now, or even further east at Vuledar, then you have 200,000 something Russian troops encircled in the south with zero chance of escape. That's such a defeat that the Russians haven't suffered since 1941. So the Ukrainians clearly have a plan. The Ukrainians clearly trained for a scenario that is like this or similar or kind of like that. We don't really know. They haven't yet had the possibility to set it in motion because the Ukrainian general staff clearly, clearly, has, as I said before, has some targets of how many Russian reserves, artillery, tanks they want to destroy before committing for a breakthrough. Because right now, people like the Ukrainians have committed all their troops. Now, the Ukrainians have rotated troops into the front where the most intense fighting is going on in Zaporozhye region right now. This is three brigades. If I'm not mistaken, two air assault brigades and one mechanized brigade are fighting here. And the brigades that were fighting before in that sector have been pulled back to rest and get a refit and take in new recruits, train them, and they will be committed again at a later time. So Ukraine hasn't committed 100% of its troops. It has rotated a lot of its troops into the front to have them fight, but also pulled back entire brigades to give them a rest and prepare them to go back into the front at another time or another location. So the Ukrainian offensive hasn't failed. It's much slower than we expected and we hoped for. It's still absolutely methodical, very focused. The Ukrainians keep focusing on destroying Russian air defenses, Russian electronic warfare, and Russian artillery. The reason being, a Russian tank is an easy target now with a javelin or an enloy, you destroy it. But Russian artillery can still hit and kill a lot of Ukrainian troops. You have to take the Russian artillery out as much as you can. Electronic warfare systems and jammers and air defense systems prevent Ukrainian drones from flying deep into the Russian rear and look for targets. So you have to take them out to allow Ukrainian drones to go deeper into the Russian rear and find interesting targets. The Ukrainians are doing it extremely systematically, focused, and because it's not NATO with its massive air power, the Ukrainians are much slower than a NATO-led operation would be. 
but there's progress slow but steady steady is not bad steady is exactly what um let's let's reel back there's very few comparisons which make sense with previous wars unfortunately as always and we can't be uh, asked to do, um discuss now why but if we want to take anecdotes then why not uh, the italian campaign of uh, the eights and uh, well the the american and the british uh, when they went up italy they had to at times grind down the fighting withdrawal of the german troops and they have to do so methodically and they had to push and it took time and anzio was a disaster in that regard but it took a significant amount of methodic hard work and that's what it is the art yes. of arms anzio Antio was a disaster because the Americans sent in a general who was timid and incompetent. And he landed with uh, two divisions, a British and an American. And he had between him and Rome just a few SS units who were around to just round up Jews. There were no German fighting formations. There were only German murder squads and German war crime squads that were looking for the last Jews, and he could have taken Rome and cut off the German army in the south in one swoop, but he decided to dig in, giving the Germans like a week to bring in entire tank divisions. And so Anzio became a freaking disaster. And that's the lesson. You need a aggressive, you need a Patton or a Montgomery when you're going to risky attacks and yeah, so the, the Ukrainian general who will be tasked with crushing, crossing the Dnieper, he needs to bear, be a daring, do, smart, fearless commander. And I don't know who they have chosen, but I wish him the best of luck. But the comparison is correct. You have a front line that isn't really moving because you have to grind down the enemy back then. The main use to grind down the Germans was artillery and air power, but all of it with dump bombs. So you had to fire like a hundred shells to hit a German tank. Today you hit it with the first shell because thanks to Excalibur, you will not miss. So it took an immense amount of time, an immense amount of blood, and a Polish division who sacrificed itself to grind the Germans down. And then the Americans landed, and the Americans and the British landed in the German rear. So the same situation here in Ukraine. You have to grind the Russians down. It takes time because you have to use mostly artillery. You don't have the precision of NATO bombers or in fighter jets flying overhead with laser-guided missiles and bombs to strike from above. So it takes a lot of time to grind the enemy down. Once you have him grinded down, you can break through or he is forced to retreat to the next line. And if you can land in his rear and establish a beachhead and then expand from that, you will get the enemy to run back into, towards his base because the risk of being cut off is just too big. So in Italy, 
it completely failed. Anzio didn't achieve any of its objectives. But the Americans learned from their mistakes. And in the Korean War, when the war was all in the South with the United Nations and South Korean forces bottled up in a small perimeter in the South, the United States landed the U.S. Marines at Incheon. The U.S. Marines landed at Incheon, didn't wait around, didn't dig in, immediately started to move towards Seoul, and immediately started to move to cut off the North Korean army in the South. And what happened, the North Korean army fled northwards because the risks of being cut off between the American South Korean army in the south and the American army, U.S. Marine army in the middle of the Korean peninsula would have meant that the Koreans lose their entire military. So at Incheon in South Korea, the plan to land behind enemy lines worked perfectly. At Enzo, it was a total disaster. So for the Ukrainians, I wish them to have something like the U.S. Marine Corps around, which basically goes on land. It is like, yes, and now let's run in, inland and get those fuckers. So uh, the Ukrainians trained with the Royal Marines. So we wish them the best that this works out. Because landing in the Russian rear, where the Russians have barely any reserves now, will devastate the Russians. The thing is that the Ukrainians, as I say again, they have a clear set of what they want to achieve before they go to this operation because it's risky. And the Ukrainians do not have unlimited numbers of troops and material. So they cannot risk losing entire brigades in a failed landing. So the Ukrainians will unleash this operation once there, before this offensive began set parameters of how much Russian equipment and reserves they want to destroy, annihilate before they go to the next phase is achieved. And you can tell by now that the Ukrainians set themselves very high numbers of what Russian equipment they want to destroy before going to the next phase. Uh, let's put it this way. It means that Ukraine, once they go to the next phase, will face less Russian resistance. It also means that it's much, much slower than anyone expected. Probably also the Russians and the Ukrainians didn't expect it to be that slow. Is it fair to say that the Russians also expected the, the Ukrainians to make more mistakes? Uh, the Ukrainians would uh, not learn as quickly as they did to um, ascertain a praise, um, scout out, and then deal with, methodically and diligently deal with the minefield belts, the deep belts, which we've seen now, and wide as they are. We discussed it here with David a few weeks ago, if you remember, Thomas, in one of our segments, that these are significantly wider and deeper and very, very densely mined as opposed to what, for example, NATO troops would have seen in, in their trainings and their maneuvers over the past decades. But at the same time, the Ukrainians did expect this in, to an extent, and they have dealt with these rather deftly. It's hard, and you lose people, you lose limbs, you lose 
a lot of momentum. At the same time, they're doing it. And the Russians seemingly expected the Ukrainians would make more mistakes, because otherwise, why would they have actually positioned their artillery as they did in Saporizhia? Very concentrated, therefore open action counter-battery fire, so that the Ukrainians actually were able to take them out more quickly. They seem to have expected a different Ukrainian approach, or is it just me? The Russians expected the Ukrainians to be as stupid as Russians, which obviously no other people in the world are, because the Russians keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Well, the Russians also learn, you know, the Russians have learned that the more mines, the better the things work. The Russians have learned that if they just mine entire fields for hundreds of meters, even if there's nobody there to shoot at Ukrainian sappers trying to clean these mines, it takes days to clean 500 meters of a mix of anti-tank mines and anti-personal mines. So the Russians have learned stuff. But the Russians keep doing the basic mistakes in the command system. And the Ukrainians, you can tell, have a very strict um, error analysis Lessons learned, let's put it this way, because, for example, the 47th Brigade on the first day of the offensive went in with an armored company and lost tanks and engineering vehicles and Bradleys. And you could tell the brigade was completely surprised by the density of the Russian minefields. The brigade pulled out with losses. We saw all those losses. It was the first, please remember, it was the first day of the offensive. And since then, no other brigade in the Ukrainian army, not even the 47, have made any more such mistakes. That means they pulled back and the same day they must have analyzed what went wrong, what needs to be improved, what's the right approach. And that was communicated immediately to all the other units, right? And no Ukrainian brigades has made any similar error since. So the Ukrainians are learning lessons at an intense speed and disseminating that information, those lessons learned, to all the other units. And you can tell that the Ukrainians are now doing very small unit tactics. They're going like with two Bradleys forward, infantry dismounts, Infantry cleans the trenches. One Bradley supports the attacking infantry with its chain gun, 25 millimeter chain gun, to keep the Russians down or kill them or shoot them up. And the other Bradley makes overwatch looking for Russian tanks or vehicles that might come to help the Russians that are under attack. So in the worst case scenario, you lose one Bradley because once one is damaged, the other Bradley and the infantry will pull out. So the Ukrainian losses have gone down significantly because they're not giving the Russians a mass of targets to hit. And you can tell that the Ukrainians have very much learned that because also when the CV-90 was lost, the one that the Russians captured, It was in a formation of just two CV-90, which is basically just the smallest available unit in a battalion. Two CV-90s, two Bradleys, plus the mounted infantry. It's like 12 soldiers infantry and six guys in the infantry fighting vehicles. 
So the Ukrainians are doing very small unit tactics to cut down on the losses of equipment and cut down on the losses of troops. This naturally slows down their advance too, but it cuts down on their losses and the Russians still don't have an answer for that because Ukraine is advancing every day and it's moving, it's moving and going ahead. Sure, you would, it would have been better if Ukraine would just go in with 2,000 vehicles at once and just overrun the Russians. But as the first day showed, the density of the minefield, which we haven't seen since El Alamein in, November 19, in October, November 1942, where there were also miles and miles of minefields that the Germans and Italians put up, and the Brits needed two weeks to clean, just a lane through. So um, since then, nobody has seen such minefields. And therefore, the Ukrainians looked at that, learned lessons, and drew from that lessons and now advance systematically. And if we go back in the past, Korean War, we didn't have such minefields. Uh, Israeli and Egyptian wars, the different ones from the Six-Day War to the Yom Kippur War, we didn't have that amount of minefields. Uh, also in the Golan Heights, when the Israelis and the Syrians clashed in Yom Kippur, there weren't this kind of minefields. Iran and Iraq put up that kind of minefields, but you know, they didn't have anything but human wave attacks, so it doesn't really compare because they were just wasting people to clear the mines because, you know, if you tell people to rob through a minefield, yes, they will set off all the mines. The minefield is clear, but you then have the limbs of about 2,000 people in that minefield. So that's kind of like something only the Iranians can do. So it doesn't compare Afghanistan, Iraq wars. We didn't have these minefields. Uh, the Armenians laid a ton of mines in the Karabakh region. But the Armenians were horrifically bad at air defense. So the Azerbaijanis took just three days to destroy the Armenian air defense and then bomb Armenian positions so that sappers could clean the mines without interference from Armenian troops. And even though there were lots of minefields, they were just a few hundred meters deep. So it does nothing in the history since uh, El Alamein, which, I mean, it's now, 80 years ago, uh, 81, 81 years ago, compares to what the Ukrainians are facing. And still, the Ukrainians advance and advance and advance. And the further south they come, the less mines there are because the Russians place the highest amount of mines in the first lines and then less and less mines. So the Ukrainians now face less mines, but still, you know, if a minefield has 10,000, you have to clear a lane and it takes time to clear those lane. Maybe it's three, 400 mines in that lane that you have to clear. You come to the next field, there's just 2,000 mines. Yes, you will be faster by clearing them, but you still need to go the same slow approach to clear a lane. You cannot just rush it. You will have to defuse less mines, but you will still spend the same amount of time to search your lane for enemy mines. So, 
and, and it's you might slow, be under it's fire. a grind, but it goes on. You might be under fire. Sorry? You might be under fire at the point in time yeah. when you're trying to clear those minefields. The closer you the closer you come to the other side, you will, might be contested under fire and therefore significantly more at risk to losing your successful demining uh, de teams to essentially enemy fire, even artillery. Yes. The thing is, the Azerbaijanis managed to kill um, Armenian defense units with Bayraktars and Harop suicide drones. So they barely had any defense units, Armenian defense units, disturbing their sappers. So the Azerbaijani sappers had an easy time while they were cleaning the lanes. And once they were through these Armenian lanes, there was just nothing that stopped them. The Ukrainians exactly have the Russians in the trenches and they can't send in the drones because the Russians still have air defense, which would shoot, shoot down the drones. But what the Ukrainians have is cluster munition because um, one of the things with cluster munition is that, you know, um, when you hear a mortar round or an artillery shell, you hear it coming down. <laughs> then it detonates. So you can duck in a trench. Cluster munitions are much more silent and you can tell from the Russians sometimes they don't even hear them coming in. And the Russians are just surprised when the cluster munitions begin to detonate around them. So what the Ukrainians have now, the cluster munitions that the Americans delivered, helps the Ukrainian because the Russians are in their trenches but with their heads outside of the trench to shoot at the Ukrainians. If the Ukrainians cluster munition than those Russian trenches, lots of the Russians are gonna die. You keep this up, you can almost clean the trench and make a path, an opening for your sappers, a time opening for your sappers to clean a lane. Then when Russian artillery comes in, you have to retreat wait the Russian artillery to be it's over, then you go again, then you advance again and continue to clean a lane. As you can see, this is again methodically, but time-consuming, and the Ukrainians are doing it. The Ukrainians are also now trying to, to use... Um, the Russians left some roads without mines, because on those roads, the Russians were advancing... Uh, we're bringing in their own logistics. So the Ukrainians are now trying to advance on those roads because the Russians can only mine them very quickly when they retreat. And on those dirt roads, when there is no vegetation, you see those mines much easier because if the Russians just dug a hole and threw a mine in, you can see that there's a patch of disturbed earth. If the Russians just launched some uh, mines with an artillery system, you, they lie on the ground, you see them. Worst thing is if the mines are overgrown by vegetation, which is happening because the mines, the Russian place, they placed in winter and all spring and summer vegetation grew over them. So the Ukrainians have the problem that where they're trying to clean mines by hand, there's vegetation. But now the Ukrainians have found that the Russian roads for the Russian logistics run are very minimal mine, minimally, minimally mined. The Ukrainians are trying to advance there. The Russians know that and try to put some troops there to you know, fire the Ukrainians. So it's a 
hard, deadly, slow grind, which the Ukrainians continue, suffering losses in troops especially. But so far, the Ukrainians see that their approach is working and brings them closer to break through the Russian lines. Even though the Western press doesn't like it, because, you know, we would like to have the cavalry arrive and write the enemy down, but... That only happens if the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force work together, because then you can really write the enemy down. But Ukraine doesn't have the luxury of an air force that is bigger than the rest of the world's air forces combined. And even then, even then, it takes time. That's what people often forget. Uh, the forces of the United States Army fought against in the Second World War or in Korea were sufficiently large to that even with substantially uh, superior air power and attriting the enemy, the risk of a counterattack was always there. The loss of units um, was a constant issue for them. And logistics, if you advance too fast, you have to be able to follow up with your logistics. And, um, well, there's at least four or five um, scenarios during the Second World War, during the approach after D-Day, uh, respectively also in Italy in the Italian campaign, where the United States as well as uh, our British uh, allies and friends uh, were unable to advance as quickly as they would have wanted because they outran their logistics. Now, Ukraine may not have that issue, but at the same time, hitting the Russian logistics is their key aspect. And by the way, if I may just interject this, you said it earlier, the learning which has taken place the 47th is the unit which went through Robotina. The 47th is at the is the spear at the, the tip of the spear in the advance in that pocket, or yeah, going down south from Robotina and uh, probably advancing further south southeast. Exactly. So the unit that made an error on the first day of the offensive has learned so well that it's still in the fight, hasn't been pulled back, has had so few losses in three months that they didn't need to be pulled back, has now such an experience that they keep on going and are leading the advance. So you see, lessons learned, it's a key aspect of all the NATO armies. It works. You need to analyze your errors Honestly, openly, truthfully, directly, address it, and then fix it. And then you can succeed. One thing about uh, running out of logistics in North Africa, either when the British advanced or the German Italians, the advances, the offensives always slowed down and then stopped when they ran out of the logistics lines. And the key for North Africa for the British to win at El Alamein was Malta. The Germans and Italians just couldn't get fuel, ammunition, troops, and replacement equipment past that island and the Royal Air Force there. So for the Ukrainians to interdict Russian logistics is key. And it would be so much better for everyone if someone would finally allow the Ukrainians to use a long-range Western missile to just bring down the Crimean rail bridge. You can transport so much more by railway than by truck. That's why it's key to bring down the Crimean railway bridge at Kerch. 
the road bridge, you can destroy one half of it. It's like one lane that will put the traffic to a crawl, but you still have an escape route for the Russians because you want the Russians that have been settled by Putin in Crimea to escape back to Russia as soon as possible. But the Ukrainian railway bridge, if anyone wants to help Ukraine win this, should just tell them, here is a missile, go and destroy a key section of the Ukrainian, of the Russian Kerch bridge, but the railway bridge. That's the most annoying part that this railway bridge still stands. Because over that you can bring in so much more supplies than with just trucks. And the Ukrainians are working on their own drones to destroy it. Hopefully they will succeed very soon to destroy it. Which brings us to the point that um, when Jerome, uh, kindly, (laughs) from military land, recently renamed the Southwestern Front from Kherson to Kalanchak, I found that smart and uh, equally um, enlightening and funny because it obviously directs all of the attention to where next substantial explosions will take place. And the area which you described a little earlier, Amiens, Krasnoperekovsk and the likes, those being within the range of artillery, being, being within the range of missile attacks will be important to take. But when Russian troops were to retreat, for example, towards Crimea, you would have to be very quick and very fleet of foot. The attackers, and specifically the older attackers with airbursts, would come in quite handy. I mean, one would hope that uh, both Turkish and Romanian deliveries were to come through, right? Yes. The thing is that, um, how to phrase this? Um, give me a question because I, I try to formulate here an answer because I know some stuff and I have to be very careful right now. Okay, let, let's put it this way. Um, at the moment, for example, I'll put the question in a different format. There's substantial yes. amount of logistics equipment which will be soft shell. Yeah. There will be substantial amount of transportation equipment, including helicopters, which will be soft shell. And there's loads and loads of infantry which is mounted on, um, in this instance, the MPs and the like. They are not shielded. So airburst ammunition might come in handy. Absolutely. Which the Ukrainians received from France, airburst ammunition for the artillery. But the best airburst stuff would be cluster munitions again. And those, the best version, are the M26 rockets, which are the original rockets for the HIMARS and M270 launchers, which the United States still has an unknown number in their depots, which were planned to be decommissions because they're uh, they're past their the date that the United States military assumes that they can be safely transported and used. You know. Which is just so because the United States in peacetime has much more stringent rules about that than in wartime because you don't want to have soldiers getting killed because your ammunition is too old in peacetime. Because that sounds that's bad that's for morale and political reasons. So the Ukrainians should get um, M26 rockets, hopefully a lot, 
and they should get attack camps with the unitary warhead and they should get attack camps with a cluster munitions warhead because both of those will be very, very helpful to strike Russian troops. Cluster munitions, really, really helpful to strike Russian troops on the move because the cluster munitions destroy everything that isn't a tank outright because the shrapnel will shred it, especially the tires and the fuel tanks. And if a cluster munition comes down nicely on a tank, it will make a dent, it will damage it, it will destroy the uh, optics in many cases. So yeah, Ukraine should get cluster munition rockets, be it HIMARS, be it M26, to help destroy Russian units on the move. Now the attack camps disperse so many bomblets. It's not DPICM. DPICM is in the M26 rockets. This is, a, I think, a anti-personnel material something, APM something. So the attack camps have something like APM bomblets, which are different. The attack camps disperse so many bomblets that you really would have to have a Russian battalion on the move to make it worthwhile. Attack camps with cluster munitions are much, much better used and were originally developed to destroy Soviet air defense sites. Because if that comes raining down, not just the radar is destroyed, but all the launchers, all the crews, all the vehicles, nothing remains because nothing of that is armored. And the second thing Attackhams was originally developed for was to strike at Soviet helicopter and air bases. Because if 600 bomblets rain down and fire shrapnel in all directions, then no matter which helicopter is parked there, no matter what fighter jets or bomber is parked there, the shrapnel will damage them beyond repair. There's just so many holes in them, they will never fly again. So Ukraine should definitely receive attack camps to strike soft Russian targets, ideally M26 rockets. Secondly, they should get attack camps with unitary warheads to strike at Russian buildings, command posts, bases, ammunition depot, and attack camps with cluster munitions to strike at the Russian airfields in Crimea. Because once you have those, the Russian fighter jets that are parked there are all gone in seconds. Uh, Thomas, I mean, I was, you nearly answered my question, then I was going to answer the difference. What's the difference between an, um, a 155 millimeter uh, cluster munition shell and an M26 cluster munition shell and an Atacams uh, cluster munition shell? But, but you've, you've kind of done that. I'm just kind of wondering also how many, how many tons of these do we have uh, to be able to give to Ukraine? Uh, is one more costly than the other? And um, is there a, which one's best from a cost-to-kill ratio, would you say? Just a second, because someone is sending me questions to answer later. Uh, okay, I will answer those later. Okay, so the question is about the cluster munitions right now. The difference is that it, there's two kinds of cluster munitions. The one is 155 millimeter artillery, also 105 millimeter artillery and M26 rockets. 
all of those contain a variant of EPICM. The variants are just small differences. For example, a charge, explosive charge, ejects the cluster bomblets from the 155 millimeter shells and therefore the cluster munitions closest to that charge are more sturdy to make sure that they do not detonate while they are still in the shell when they are being ejected. But they're all dissimilar. So M26 rockets, which are fired six per pot from the pots of the M270 MLRS and from the HIMARS system, contain DPICM cluster munitions. There's also 155 millimeter artillery shells, DPICM cluster munitions. The rockets contain a lot more than the artillery shells. The rockets in the later versions, the extended range version, also have a bit more range. Um, the difference is that, for example, if you have a 155 millimeter shell, you will have to use two, three shells to kill as many uh, people of your target as you wish, right? Because you will have to um, hit it a few times to bring enough shells down on your enemy. And with the M26 rocket, one should be enough to kill almost everyone in that area because it's just so many more shells that come in. I just have to stack, uh, put my phone on the electricity just a second. So if not, the battery dies in me. No worries. So I put it on electricity. So sorry, guys, I'm back. So um, M26 is also a little bit faster to fire because the HIMARS gets the um, targeting information. You put it in, the computer in the HIMARS or M270 automatically calculates the uh, coordinates and the fire mission. And then you basically just press a button and it flies. With 155 millimeter, you have to adjust the gun. You have to elevate and, you know, all that stuff and calculate. You have to prepare the shell because you need to program a time fuse, which basically tells the explosive charge when to eject the um, bomblets. Most manuals suggest that before you fire a cluster munition shell, you should fire one high explosive round and observe. Because if that high explosive round hits in the center of where you want the cluster munitions to come down, you know that exactly your cluster munitions will form a circle around that impact if you have the time correct. So with 155 millimeter, you have to load a normal high explosive projectile. You fire it, it comes down, you observe with the drone if it hit, you fire one cluster munition shell, you program the time fuse, you observe with the drone if the uh, time fuse ejected the cluster munitions at the right moment, because if it's too late, the cluster munitions will come down too close together. 
And well, in that sector where they come down, everything will be dead, right? But maybe you will miss some troops that are standing a little bit further away. If you have set the time fuse for ejecting too early, the cluster munitions will come down in a circle that is too wide and might not kill every one of the enemy because, you know, the enemy maybe stands in a 50 meter circle. And if the cluster munitions are ejected too early, they come down with a circle of a 200 meters diameter. And, you know, that means some of the Russians survive. If, on the other hand, you program it too late, the cluster munitions come down all in a chunk someplace. So you have to fire a high explosive shell, you fire a cluster munitions shell, and then you know exactly where it comes down, what time setting you have to use, and you will be very precise. But it takes time. If you use an M26 rocket, first thing, it's faster to fire. You don't need to fire first a high explosive shell. And there's many more cluster munitions in there. So it's not that important to set the time fuse correctly. Sorry. The time fuse correctly, because if you set it a bit too early, there's so many cluster bomblets raining down, you kill everything anyway. So it's not a drama. So cluster munitions, M26, the United States produced half a million rockets of those. Um, so they um, destroyed about 90,000 something because they were way too old. They used, I think, some 40,000, 60,000 over time for training in the first and second Gulf War. They might have destroyed more in the last years. Trump stopped the destruction, even though the Pentagon wanted to destroy it because the oldest that were made in the early 80s that were 40 years old became unstable. And how many the United States has, maybe 100,000, maybe 300,000, it's a secret, we don't know. Most of them are stored in the Korean Peninsula because the United States plans to use them if the North Korean human wave attack should come over the border. The US and South Korea would just cluster munitions, these human wave attacks into meatballs with the cluster munitions. So could the United States and South Korea spare a twenty to 40,000 such M26 rockets for Ukraine? Yes, they could. Is there a willingness there? I don't know, but I wish there was one because this is an excellent mass killer. That People have no idea how brutally the DPICM cluster munitions work. You can read Russian telegram channels. The Russian troops that get hit by that absolutely hate it. Because the uh, kill factor is, in is immense. And secondly, the wounds the weapons create are brutal. I just, someone is calling me. I have to get out for a second no, and I tell no you, attack him. Do your thing. Um, because there's someone writing me emails even that I need to answer this call. Sorry, guys. Do your thing. No worries. And with, okay. in the meantime, let's just highlight. Uh, if you um, are interested in uh, discussing this in uh, further detail, if you wish to join us, feel free to come up and ask your questions. If you have no time to ask your question or don't want to be online and don't want to have your voice heard, not a problem. You can always um, either send a carrier pigeon with uh, your message written on a little piece of paper 
Senators uh, Shahi's pigeon hold um, uh, somewhere in England, and the pigeon will find its way. Not having said this, of course, you can send both Shaggy and myself, as well as all our colleagues here on the moderator staff, um, uh, a couple of questions, and we shall be delighted um, reading them out if they're not utterly, completely beyond bereft of any kind of rugby influence. Sorry, if they are not uh, kind of, uh, in any shape or form uh, bereft of, uh, uh, say, silliness. Um, given the fact that both Shaggy and I are completely, utterly uh, bereft of any quality at this point in time. Shaggy, can you please tell me, what on earth is happening with rugby at the moment? What is England doing? Rugby? I didn't even know we were playing rugby. Oh, you play rugby. Um, you don't play rugby. Okay, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Anyway, so apart from this uh, uh, brief interlude, no, seriously, um, real reporters here, we, we want to in, uh, make sure that you have a, a sufficient amount of decent information and that we will bring you both granular as well as more comprehensive uh, and broad, broad strokes information and review of what Ukraine is doing in their counteroffensive. Um, fortunately, we're very lucky to be joined by our friend Thomas Tyner in that regard this evening. Thomas will be back with us in about two to three minutes when he has dealt with that call. Shaggy, carry on. I'm just happy to hear that uh, Fiji beat Australia in the rugby. That's all I've got to say about rugby. Oi, 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 oi. While we are waiting for Thomas, uh, there, we are also fundraising uh, uh, at this moment. Uh, we are fundraising for the SBU Alpha Unit of the Security Service of Ukraine, who is in critical need of special air protection and accessories for secure walkie-talkies. So if you have some spare money and you would like to help Ukraine, you can do it. Donate that to mariareport.org. There is a fundraising going on. Uh, take a look at the website and uh, Excellent. consider it. Thank you very much for that, Mr. I'm very much appreciating you. are absolutely right. There's a good reason uh, as to what we're doing here, not only provide information, uh, awareness and proper discussion of what is going on in Ukraine, but we also like to make sure that we can highlight good causes such as what is currently happening in our fundraiser for the SBU unit, and we'll come back to that in a little while. Thomas, can you hear us? Yes, sorry. It was my father, who is 81, and he had a computer question, and I was like, I can't help you now with Winward, and I told you never to change the editing, because Winward always destroys the entire document. So I know now what I will do tomorrow at 8 a.m. in the morning. I will fix documents. <laughs> anyway. Nothing ever changes. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, I need this file. Okay, okay, okay. He is 81 and he can just not stop working as an engineer, civil engineer. So basically it's like, okay. But it's, I understand with 81 it's difficult if you start to learn AutoCAD. We learned it with 76 and they're still, and Winward and everything. So still, you know, um, hiccups and I'm basically the teacher sometimes. And yeah. Sorry, people. Um, uh, I'm back. Uh, we should go to attack camps unless someone has a question that is different or other topic. If not, we're going to attack camps now. Yeah, we had a couple of questions in the meantime. Maybe we can start with those. I mean, there was a question from a good colleague, John, who asked as to whether Ukraine... Uh, would be constructing hard standings in the depth behind current front lines to enable movement and uh, use uh, wheeled artillery, towed artillery, uh, as well as uh, um, 
once the rain comes. Uh, good question. Do you think that they are planning that uh, they are planning for that at the moment, or are they still in their maneuver phase? Because uh, he tends to believe that obviously this is a good support and low effort method to enable further offensive action when the weather um, continues to turn down. What do you think? Yes. Okay. So the microphone is on. Perfect. Um, the Ukrainians, I think, have four regiments, engineering troops, uh, for the rear area um, maintenance and construction of exactly that hard surface and logistic routes and bridges. So these are not pontoon bridge regiments, which are meant to cross the Dnieper. These are just units full of construction equipment, which uh, consist of multi-battalions. And as far as I know, some of these battalions are tasked with um, building uh, defensive positions, which right now the Ukrainians aren't doing that much because obviously they're on the offensive. And there's also um, road construction or road repair units there, right, that support. I think it's four because each Ukrainian command, west, south, center, and east, had one regiment attached. And these are all building, constructing roads, railways, and so on, and keeping that intact. There's also two engineering brigades, which are both a mystery because I don't really understand what they're doing. Because if you have engineer regiments doing the basic construction and maintenance stuff, why you have brigades? These might be brigades that are breakthrough units. I haven't figured it yet out because they all pulled out the pontoon elements from all existing engineer units and made two pontoon regiments two pontoon regiments to cross the Dnieper and one pontoon regiment to in the rear repair bridges or put up um, emergency bridges to keep the logistics lines open. So yeah, I'm pretty sure the Ukrainians are building and improving the roads in the rear of the troops at the front. The details I don't know because as we all have seen, the Ukrainians are using an immense amount of trucks to transport equipment from Romania and Poland to the front. And as you have noted, we have seen barely three or four of such pictures even now because the Ukrainians, all the people know that this is taking pictures of that helps the Russians. So they're keeping it very, very secret and the, all the Ukrainians in Ukraine support that. The Russians destroyed a railway bridge. Don't tell you where. And the bridge was out for months. And the Russians... Uh, didn't know it because they, nobody in Ukraine that passed the bridge took a picture. The Russians will definitely have satellite images, but there's not a single picture from the ground. There wasn't a single picture of the Ukrainian uh, engineering troops repairing that bridge. There was not a single piece of news. The trains were rerouted and this bridge was pretended it, yeah, as, as if it was existing, but nobody wanted to go over it anymore. So the Ukrainians are keeping an extreme tight nationally together uh, secret those stuff. So even if the Ukrainians are building now roads to prepare for winter and for the wet season, we're not seeing it. So if you were if you were driving there, you would see it, but nobody in Ukraine is taking pictures of it because everybody knows that will help the Russians to understand. Let's say if the Ukrainians begin to build twenty bridge, uh, twenty roads 
hardened roads to the direction of Vuledar, the Russians would understand that there's a major offensive coming. If the Ukrainians built 20 roads to a certain point at the Dnieper and reinforce those and prepare them and pay uh, and make parking spaces or staging areas near them, then you both would probably know that there is likely to go be a crossing in that area. So the Ukrainian nation, all the people, are keeping very, very quiet about that. So yes, I would assume that this is happening. We haven't seen it yet. And as the Ukrainians are keeping it all very, very quiet, and as they should, I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. How do you build out uh, for mobile artillery? How do you build out or how do you create proper hard standings for artillery in what can only be described as a then damp and slightly more soggy underground? Are there any capabilities which we have, which we've given our colleagues or how would you do it? I mean, you've been in the artillery, you should know. Um, Italy doesn't have that problem with wet and swampy stuff because the ground is always either dry or rocky, uh, gravel or something like that. What the Ukrainians can do, um, if they, the problem is if the front moves, you know, it doesn't really make sense to build fixed position where you put up their artillery, also because such fixed positions will attract Russians. And you might have lancets overhead. Um, what you can do is mats, like the Germans and the British and the Dutch countries, which have a swampier underground, right? Artillery only have metal mats. Like if you, if you go camping and you have a camper or a mobile home, there are plastic mats you can uh, clip together and put on the ground so that you don't walk on the sand or on the grass because those mats that you clip together make a floor, right? And there's also the metal version where basically an artillery unit can get those and clip them together and put under their artillery system so they are on a four by four meter mat and then you place your artillery on it so it doesn't slide. But I haven't seen it used in Ukraine once because basically the Ukrainians use Western artillery, right? It's so precise that even if the gun slides a little bit on some mud, it doesn't matter. Those few meters, uh, those, the moment the gun fires, the shell is so quickly out of the barrel that the movement on the muddy ground doesn't affect the trajectory of the round, right? It does affect a, uh, a um, pout artillery system, but a Caesar system, if the, um, let's say the system, the Caesar system shifts on mud after the firing, the computer will immediately recalculate and recalibrate and move its barrel a fraction of a millimeter or centimeter towards the target again to compensate. So this is not a problem. The problem is that you don't want to get your stuff stuck. So you better build roads so your artillery doesn't get stuck in some mud, which also means if you build some roads, you can easily fire from them, no problem. Is there, uh, Thomas, is there an equivalent of a netted underground currently in use or is there something like a what we have with the foldable roads which both germans as well as others have 
which can support artillery, which is on the move, but needs to be, um, shall we say, sufficiently guarded against soggy underground. I haven't seen it. The thing is that it was absolutely common in World War One. It was massively common in World War Two. Uh, also, they had reeds they put together and then they placed on the ground and then put some earth on it and stamped on it to make it harder and drier. Um, the thing is that with modern systems, you know, the precision is so great. I haven't seen it. I mean, the Italian military doesn't use it anymore. Well, okay, because also the ground here is not as soggy and swampy as, let's say, a heath in North Germany or in the UK. All right, good point. Anyone, fin any Finnish artillery officer here because the Finns and maybe the Swedes with their terrain would use it still. Stuff to put, um, also the Baltic nations, those are, you know, swampy and, and lots of heats. Uh, Heide in German. I think it's Heath in English, right? Heath. Yeah. H -E -A. Yeah, Heath. Uh, yeah, I think maybe those countries would use it. Uh, the United States isn't using it. I wouldn't be aware. I haven't seen it in Spain. So, yeah, it's a question if this is being used still as a standard system. It was in World where the units all brought it with them, you know, uh, even locks sometime to place under, not in the North African desert because there it was just, you know, but in the Soviet Union, the Germans and the Soviet during the Rasputitsa season, brought reeds and gravel with them to the artillery positions to put the artillery on that. But I wouldn't have seen it here right now. So this is a topic that is so far out. Ignore. Let's continue with something more interesting. Sure. No, of course. It was just a question which came up. We have two more. No, it's, it's a question. It just, it's like, um, it's so obscure because this is like um, NATO unions don't use it. And it's, it's it was used 80 years ago. It wasn't used I haven't seen it in the Korean War. I haven't seen it in the Pacific. It's kind of like a Eastern Europe thing. And World War One, where everything was swampy because everything was just destroyed, especially in Flanders, where basically the whole thing was a swamp after a few years of fighting. Um, yeah. I don't know if the Ukrainians even received that stuff. Or if they're, I haven't seen it with Ukraine. I see sometimes that the Ukrainian M777s jump because the ground is too muddy and the spurs that should keep them in the ground just jump back from the recoil and the Ukrainians can't do anything. Hmm. Need some research, but this is an obscure topic. This is kind of like, you know, asking some chef which kind of parcel oil he uses for a certain dish. It's very niche. So I don't know who came up with the question, but it's a very nice question that even um, that might stump even most artillery people because it's unless you're an artillery historian of World War II, then you probably know exactly which reeds were the best. I think it was someone from the British Army who really takes care of things and really wants to know because evidently 80 years ago, as you quite rightly said, those things were in use and they were in use in Ukraine. Uh -huh. Yep, Eastern Front. You had to have it. All right, we have three hands up, Thomas, if you don't mind. So, okay, please, please. So, Johannes, Ghost, and then Basilius, let's go through those three hands, and then we go back to the attackants, because there's a couple of things about it. Johannes, please. Hi, yeah, thank you. Uh, wasn't there also Alex? Uh, I guess he's... Yeah, he, he fell, but, he fell uh, away. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got two Two, uh, well, one remark, one question. The question would be I don't know if you have got anything to say about that. Is I mean, there have been reports lately 
about kind of that Russia is trying to restock or replenish their 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 arsenal of missiles. So I just wonder when the winter comes, should we expect another kind of wave of or, or is this over? I mean, uh, can the are, would the Russians again be capable of 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 uh, just terrorizing Ukraine's population and destroying infrastructure. And, and I mean, this probably wouldn't have much of an impact on the war, but, but I just wonder how, how real is this danger? And, and then uh, maybe um, like three days ago, I listened to a podcast episode of uh, well, the Guardian podcast today in focus, which was entitled, I think, Breaking Through Russia's Lines. Which, uh, where they really visited the front and, and they talked to the, 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 the squads who do the demining. And I mean, it sounded really, I mean, it sounded like an almost impossible task. I mean, they really go meter by meter and, and they have, you really need the watchmakers kind of uh, fingerspitzengefühl, so to say. Uh, to 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 like like stoking with pens in the ground to 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 detect mines uh, uh, and but keep them from exploding. So so this seems like an extremely risky and extremely extremely slow process. And and they, they talked also about that this in some places the the, the minefields are are ten uh, kilometers deep or ten miles even deep. And I mean I just wonder. Can we expect that once those this impossible task is completed and they are through those minefields, uh, won't the Russians just lay new mines behind in in another line? So, so I just I mean I excuse me I'm I'm a complete layman, but that's kind of the first thing that came to my mind. Thanks. Thank you for the question, Johannes. Let's go with the mines first. Um, the Russians have been laying Soviet mines. The Russians just um, taking like the Americans out of their Cold War depots, whatever they can find, and laying Soviet mines. And if the Rus Russians want to lay more mines, they will have to produce them or buy them from North Korea or from Iran. So as it is right now, the Russians want to lay more mines, but you know, the production bottlenecks are real because post the Cold War, the Russians weren't producing like millions of mines a year anymore. So, um, the Russians want to lay more mines, but production bottlenecks are a problem. Second thing, yes, the sappers have a horrible task. They have to crouch through the vegetations and look for mines. It would be easier if they can burn down the vegetation to look for mines. The problem is if they burn down the vegetation, they burn also down their cover against Russian snipers and machine gunners. So. They can't do that, so they have to crawl through these vegetations and find the mines and clear a lane, hoping the Russians won't see them, hoping the Russian artillery won't hit them, hoping they don't oversee a butterfly mine or a petal mine or something like that while they clean in all that grass. NATO has specifically designed mine clearing vehicles. The big problem is that NATO has so few of those because we don't expect to have such minefields in front of us. Thus, barely we could donate anything. Like uh, Finland had six mine clearing vehicles. Italy has a lot more, but you know, Italy, they're all old. They're all out of, based of Leopard 1s out of the late 70s and early 80s. And half of them are broken by now and don't work. So the whole NATO um, has a problem with mine clearing 
armored tracked mine clearing vehicles. The Americans have the assault breacher vehicle, which is an Abrams tank variant, but they don't export it because of the classified uh, depleted uranium mesh in its armor. So which basically would mean that the Americans have to take the whole thing apart and take out the uranium mesh, which is meant to, uh, through its density, to um, break apart uh, penetrators and deflect uh, high explosive anti-tank particle streams. So yeah, complex to do that. Long story short, demining, the Ukrainians are forced to do it basically like the Brits in El Alamein sent in infantry and sappers and basically keep your head down and try to easier in North Africa, but there's just sand, you know, and you can just go through the sands with your fingers. And in Ukraine, basically, you have a lot of grass and vegetation and plants, and you have to stick a metal probe around to try to find the mines. The problem is if you hit with that probe a petal mine, which is a type of butterfly mine, it will detonate in your face. So yeah, lots of uh, this, the sappers again, I was... <laughs> I know the sappers. I was with a unit of those guys. Those are not uh, jobs you want, even if you volunteer for the sappers because you can blow up stuff and you get to do lots of fun stuff. Demining is continuously uh, dangerous, ungrateful, tedious job, which has to be done. And NATO uses armored vehicles for that, but the amount that NATO procured, not even in the Cold War, not even in the Cold War did NATO procure a lot of mine-clearing vehicles because NATO was always a defensive alliance and you need mine-clearing vehicles for an offensive. So what NATO in the Cold War got was instead mine-launching vehicles, basically vehicles you could drive around the field and it would launch in irregular intervals mines left and right to create a quick mine field which you could set up with a timer to detonate itself after 72 hours or 48 hours with the intention of slowing down the Soviet tank divisions. So NATO got a ton of mine laying vehicles and barely any mine clearing vehicles because NATO as a defensive alliance didn't need it and now this comes back to bite the Ukrainians because NATO has so little to give. And now to the questions about the Ukrainian energy grid and heating plans for winter. Yes, the Russians are looking forward to making Ukrainian civilians sit in the dark and freeze. They're stockpiling ammunition. They're getting ready to hit all the thermal plants, all the electricity plants again, because if it's a war crime, the Russians get off on it and love it and want to do it because war crimes is the Russian culture. Now, Long story short, Ukraine is getting air defense systems. They are also stockpiling spare parts and replacement parts to get things back online as quickly as possible. Ukraine is getting from Germany Iris-T systems. I know how many, but it's classified. Ukraine is getting more Patriot batteries. And I will leave it at that, but there will be more very quickly, very soon. Ukraine is getting a lot more NASAM systems, thanks to Norway, Canada, the Dutch, and the Danish, and the Americans paying for them. The French have thrown in some Crotal systems. There's a bunch of air defense systems of Soviet origin that is coming to Ukraine, which the Ukrainians have received from 
classified nations, which don't want it in the public, but these are systems that are much more modern than the Soviet air defense systems the Ukrainians operate right now. They, those countries were told to hand them over to Ukraine, and in return they can buy price-reduced Patriot batteries, which obviously are so much better that these countries are happily parting with the junk that Putin sold them in the last 15, 20 years. So Ukraine is getting a ton of debt, and this uh, Frankensam, which uh, uses a Soviet-origin book air defense system, which has a radar and has four missiles on top, is being paired with United States Navy standard missile 3, 3 or 6. Which one, the standard 3, SM3 or SM6? I don't recall which of the missiles they're using. So the Ukrainians are putting up a lot, a lot more air defense systems, and they're getting more radars, and they're getting more command centers to help shoot down as many of those Russian missiles that will come in in winter and trying to plunge Ukraine into a horrific, cold, dark, long night. Will it be enough? Likely not. That's why the Ukrainians are stockpiling spare parts from everywhere in the world to try to basically get their grids back up and their heating plants back up as quickly as possible. It's also an important lesson here. Sorry, the ecologically central heating plants for a district make sense ecologically. And in Europe, we are building those plants. If your neighbor is a deranged nation of war criminals, central heating plants are an extreme danger because you can plunge an entire city or an entire city district into cold. So uh, the European system that each house has its own heating plant is a much safer system. And obviously you just have to, to, to fix the compressor stations of the gas pipelines that bring in the gas for these heating plants. So Seeing what happens in Ukraine, I changed my mind from it's a good thing for the ecology to build central heating plants for districts. So we must not have any central heating plants in Europe because once the Russians attack, those become the prime targets. And then Europeans sit also in the cold and dark. We need to go back to every house. Every building has its own heating plant or at least just, you know, a street has a joint heating plant in the cellar. So the Russians, if they hit want to hit it, they have to hit a building and kill a lot of civilians. It doesn't bother the Russians to kill a hot lot of civilians, but at least, you know, then they kill civilians, then they rage the Europeans, and they just plunge one street in darkness and cold and not the whole district. So uh, the ecology of making central heating plants, good, militarily stupid. It's a lesson that we learned from Ukraine. And if you're Spain and you're not really near Russia, yes, you can make central. Okay, Spain doesn't need that much heating. But, you know, the farther you're away from Russia, the less risky such central heating districts become. But like countries like Estonia, Latvia, Finland, Poland, they have to kill all their central heating plants and replace them with individual heating plants. Back to the missiles, uh, Raytheon, Deal, Konigsberg in Kongs. I cannot pronounce that Norwegian company that Kongsberg. makes NASAMs, but, you know, Kongsberg. Kongsberg, Deal, Raytheon, and everybody else has increased air defense, radar production, air defense, missile production, command post production. Weirdly, the only one that isn't doing anything is the SAMT producing 
company, MBDA, France and Italy, which I think it's because they have such a giant order for air defense missiles for the Italian and uh, French navies that they don't have capacities. Ukraine should be very, very able to shoot down an immense amount of Russian suicide drones, almost all the cruise missiles, lots of the ballistic missiles. The problem is that there will be still cities that aren't covered. There will still be missiles and drones that get through, and that's why there's this need for spare parts. Best case scenario, the Russians strike, 90% plus is shot down and the rest is fixed in a few hours. But yes, the Russians are looking already forward now to committing more war crimes of this sort this winter. Unlike last winter where Ukraine basically had no spare parts and had almost no air defense this time, Ukraine and the Rammstein group of supporting countries are getting ready but we will have never 100% protection until Ukraine is able to strike the Russian missile and drone production facilities. NATO would always ignore what the Russians fire at us. It's nice to shoot down, but to stop it, NATO would attack the factories and destroy the Russian capabilities to produce more of that. Ukraine doesn't have that ability yet, but... We hope and we pray that Ukraine, as soon as possible, acquires this capability to destroy the Russian factories producing the missiles and drones that strike continuously at Ukrainian energy grid, heating plants, and so on. I, I think this is the key point. We would take them out. Ukraine is restricted both by us telling them that whatever weapons we weapon systems we provide to them, they should better be not using them against Russia on Russian soil. On the one hand, at least some of us say this, fortunately the Brits don't. And others, um, well, how should I put this? Um, we fail to supply them with the respective systems. We would absolutely bloody take the Russians out. In the first 72 hours of any kind of conflict, we would eradicate their capability to wage war. That's what we do. This is how we plan things. But isn't uh, Ukrainian already uh, making their own uh, weapons? Yes, a few. I think this is a key point Thomas has already highlighted a few times. A few, but not in the amount and not in the in, with the capabilities which we already have. But Thomas, please. Ukraine is producing its own weapons. They're still testing it. They're not going to fire when they have one. They're going to stockpile a bit because, you know, if you fire tomorrow a Russian cruise missile, a Ukrainian cruise missile with a 600, 700 kilometer range, the Russians know that Ukraine has this capability and they will adapt. If you stockpile 60 and at the same day fire 60, the Russians will know the same thing as if you fire one, but by then you have hit 60 Russian targets, and that hurts them. So Ukraine is developing long-range drones. Ukraine is developing long-range cruise missiles. Ukraine is developing other nice stuff. They're not going to use them like once, one, one. They're going to stockpile a little bit and then introduce them with a bang. Uh, the question is, how many they want to stockpile? 10, 20, 30? The Ukrainians also get a parts from Europe, you know, because the Russians getting parts from China, 
So the Europeans were like, well, if the Russians get parts from China, there's no big problem. If European companies in the defense sector tell the Ukrainians what you need, and the Ukrainians are like a guidance section that is jamming proof and uses military level GPS. And then this European company is like, say no more. Here's a thousand. And you help the Ukrainians massively through this, you know, to get uh, quickly and efficiently up to the desired level of missiles and drones that can strike deep into Russia. Like, you know, you need an engine? Yes. What specifically you need? A 3D printer for the propellers and we need this and this and this stuff. Say no more. Here is the parts you need because European industry is producing all that. And the Ukrainians basically are buying that on credit and then they put it all together in Ukraine. So all these missiles are produced in Ukraine and they just buy some parts in Europe, the Ukrainians. So it's not a European missile. That means no European country has a problem and Ukraine uses it. There's no made in France. Made in, there's no made by BA systems in the UK with pride sticker on any of it. There's no uh, made by Swedish workers in a Swedish factory with Swedish components sticker on any of it. Uh, so the Russians, yeah, they can then figure out where those things came from, but there's nothing that they can put in the camera and say with a, like with a scalp, they can put a made in France sign into the camera because the French have put in made in France signs in their missiles. And what the Ukrainians are buying now is just basically OEM parts and they are does that fit with the yeah. made in, does that fit with the with the eradicated erased made in France uh, stamps on the chips which the Russians are still using from the contingent the French sold them in recent years? Uh, I wouldn't know. I because which I chips are we talking about? Uh, no, because so this is there's just very specific yeah. questions here, and it's like which chips because there's millions of different chips, and I'm like, which French chips guidance, are we talking about? Guidance, guidance. Missile guidance. Ah, okay. Galileo or GPS? Because GPS doesn't work with American with the American codes, which change every week. So if you are a Russian and use American GPS, military GPS chips, you don't get them first. And if you even get them, they don't work because you have to update each week the codes. Galileo. Galileo. So okay, that's why the, yeah, that's why you don't trust the French with military European projects, because then the French will fuck the Europeans over. So, uh, sorry if there are some French people here, but the French government is kind of looking always first and foremost to the French interests and then to the allied interests. And that is kind of sometimes um, annoying for allies. And nothing against the French people, just the French foreign policy establishment. And I would say some. Because the militaries don't really do that. This is a decision that comes from the LEC palace and from the foreign policy establishment that you ignore certain allied concerns to give the French industry an advantage. So, yeah, it's pretty possible. But Galileo, you know, um, it's not that good as GPS and it can be jammed much easier because the Europeans are way behind in American technology in that regard. So. That's, I'm not that, worried very much. That's the that's the point. We shouldn't be worried too much. It's just annoying, as you said. It's a nuisance. Yes, yes, it's a nuisance, and obviously, it's again that you know um, there needs to be stricter controls. The United States uh, enemy of the U.S. will not get its hands on GPS, military grade GPS chips or systems, and even if they did. 
by next Monday, 8 a.m., they are worthless because they don't have the code. The U.S. does really change every, every week the codes for the GPS, for the military GPS. And if you want to use it, you have to insert it. So if you're... If your system is parked and you don't need it that week, you don't need to enter the code. But if, for example, after six weeks, you take your fighter jet out and want to fly it before you depart, you have to put in the code of this week for the GPS to work. And if it, you don't have it, the GPS will not give you anything. So the United States is much more stringent with that because they know that military GPS, the American military GPS, which is jamming proof and much more there's civilian version and there's the military version and the military version includes a code that checks for the um, authenticity of the signal and it's much more faster. So um, while a mobile phone takes a few seconds to get the position, the military chips is a faster system, higher frequency takes much more, much less time, takes just milliseconds to establish a position. It's also more uh, precise and it's jamming proof. So yeah, the Americans are sitting very tightly on that. And there's two military GPS. One is for the United States military, which is even more precise and more fast and more jamming resistant than the one that the Europeans and the other allies get like Israel and so on, which is already the best in the world. But as always, there's a GPS for civilians and there's a, extremely fantastic military GPS, which every American ally gets and has to put in the codes every Monday. And then there's the United States military, its own GPS system, which is even better than anything else. So Galileo is a nice product that Europeans have, but it doesn't come close to anywhere what the GPS system can provide. It would have been modern and advanced 25 years ago. Unfortunately, it came into place far too late. Yeah, European policy. It's always that the Europeans make good products, but they come late to the markets because the Americans are just always 10 years, 20 years ahead. But you have to be willing to uh, make and break things. So capitalism does work. So we have tons of hands up, Thomas. We have Ghost, we have Massilius, we have Kerry, uh, then we have Lexicon, Alan and Gregory. Let's go through this. Ghost, you had a comment or a question? I had a comment. Uh, you were talking about uh, the artillery and uh, how the, to stabilize them on uh, foggy, uh, foggy ground. Uh, I know from an exercise uh, uh, in uh, Germany, where I was on the Lunenburg Heide, we used uh, octagon plates, steel plates. They could hook in each other. You could make a, a, a field uh, or a, a bend. Uh, small uh, narrow bends. Uh, you could place those pl plates on the soggy ground and hook them in in each other, and so you had a, a, a stabler on the ground for heavy trucks to go uh, better go and take that bend. So there are uh, capabilities to stabilize the, those artillery uh, pieces. Yes. So the British, even in Germany, yeah, they were in the North German plains where there's lots of heats, used them to stabilize their stuff, yeah. Berkeleide, herzlichen Glückwunsch. All righty, Miss Elias, please. 
Yeah, what what a segue, and a ghost. Uh, I I'm surprised. Maybe actually we meet each other once if you have been placed there with a Tommy's, because uh, as a kids we've been uh, running around the fields and trying to find some of your spare parts <laughs> in the Ludoburger Heide. So uh, it might have that we actually cross the paths. Um, oh, it could be. <laughs> if it was, be, could be. This if it was somewhere close to Evendorf uh, and uh, uh, a Mellinghausen area where they have been training, then it could really be. And uh, yeah, Thomas, thanks of all. Uh, you make my weekend, at least the start of it, uh, with your tremendous uh, podcast, uh, which I would highly recommend here to all the German speakers. And uh, yeah, it, it it was beautiful. And I also want to say that last week, actually, because you also advertised for it in some other tweet, I was intrigued, which... Uh, You you uh, uh you said that it's uh, such a beautiful and you are right, but I didn't have enough time actually to see everything. So, uh, but my question is to cut straight to the point. Um, yesterday we've been speaking about the attackers, and uh, yesterday probably most of us have seen the uh by uh, Blinken speech about the attackers that uh, they will come without any restriction, at least to his uh, um, uh, willing. And uh, it's all up to Ukraine's how they will use them, which is great. And at a straight uh, uh, statement, which I directly forwarded to, uh, to our chancellor to show him how actually a real help looks like. And uh, in, in the dust of it, there has been a lot of articles which I went through, and there was one from Euronews, uh, which was also speaking about the launchers and uh, also mentioning the amount of uh, uh, launchers which, which are going to Poland. And it was formulated, I think it was a mistake actually, but I hope actually it was not a mistake, that uh, Poland is doing a generous and huge donation uh, of those Hermes launchers because they are go, uh, get, uh, going to get, have a lot of them. And uh, um, from what I know, Ukraine has only 18. So I, I would re really hope uh, that if, if, if it's possible to speak about things like this, to straight it off, if some of them will actually... Uh, if the number of 18 would be increased in some uh, shape or form to your according to your knowledge or and also what you can talk about or uh, was this Euronews article uh, completely nonsense if you maybe has also re read it or does know something about it thank you very much um, thank you for those who don't know it I gave the local Italian radio here in the German-speaking province of South Tyrol, a one-hour interview about Ukraine, and I put it up on my Twitter. It's in German, so if you speak German, it seems people like it. Uh, I'm still surprised because I weird sometimes into the local dialect, which is kind of like uh, if you're living in London, you meet someone from the furthest part of Scotland, and he speaks... Uh, Scottish to you, you might have a little bit difficulty of understanding. So I weird into our dialect here, which for most German speakers is kind of like 
I can tell you, it was not noticeable. Not noticeable. Thank you. Thank you, because I was... very understandable, Thomas. I have uh, seen the interview and I uh, could understand uh, every word you have said. Perfect. Thank you, guys. No, it's on there. And if you want, uh, there's a tweet just down where it is the link to this podcast in German. And yeah, so we did that. Now to your uh, various questions. Gosh, I'm so tired today. I forget half the questions. I'm so sorry, guys. I mean, I'm, I'm working on presentations. No problem. No problem. I can repeat. I the, the main part was about, uh, is it true that they got only 18 uh, oh, okay. Yes, thank you. And, and uh, is there something about this donation from Poland or what is just uh, error in the article? Um, the thing is, I doubt that the Polish will donate because what the Polish are buying has not been produced at all yet. The production will commence in some time. The Polish are buying depending on which system, which unit organization they use. The Polish are either buying 18 battalions worth of HIMARS in the organization of the United States Army, which means 27 launchers per battalion, or the Polish are buying 27 battalions of 18 launchers, which is the European organizations for those. Because Europeans are always you know, cheaper and making battalions a little bit smaller, so they need to buy less equipment. Now, if they go by the United States organizations, that is still almost as many HIMARS battalions as the United States Army has. If the Polish go by the organization that is in Europe, the Poles have more rocket artillery then than the entirety of the rest of the continent. That's an insane amount. And the Polish are also buying Korean multiple rocket launchers. With that amount of rocket launchers, the Poles will not be able to buy enough GMLRS rockets for all of them. So my suspicion is that the Poles will go and license produce M26ER rockets with cluster munitions because those are much cheaper. And if you have so many HIMARS with a GMLRS rocket, you need the precise location of a target. Means you need reconnaissance, means you need drones, you means you need to mensurate the target and then hit it. If you have pots with M26 rockets with DPICM cluster munitions, you can just fire the entire pot in the general direction of the enemy and you will devastate and kill everything because six of those rockets just drop um, um, some 400 uh, cluster munitions on a football field, which means everything on that field is destroyed and dead. So my suspicion is that the Poles are have decided that they will get GMLRS rockets, but they will do what NATO has given up, namely produce M26ER, extended range M26 with cluster munitions. Uh, because for the price of one pot with uh, GMLRS rockets, you can get four pots with cluster munitions. So it makes sense then. The thing is, the Poles ordered it now. It will take two, three years for the order to be completely fulfilled. Uh, Ukraine might not need it by then because the war will hopefully be over. What I suspect is that the Polish, which still have a ton of Grad, Russian Soviet Grad launchers, which just fire rockets, and they have a lot of uh, 
this Polish langust, W40 langusta, I think named rocket launchers. These will all go to Ukraine. The Ukrainians have exactly the same systems. The Ukrainians have a problem with enough ammunition for those because the main producer for those systems is obviously Russia and China, and they're not giving Ukraine anything of those. But Ukraine will get them, and we will have to see probably if Bulgaria or Poland can put up a production line for that because that help can go to Ukraine right now and it can be useful. The Czechs gave their um, vampire systems, which is similar to the uh, Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have been using that to bombard the Russian positions along the Dnieper. So, yeah, the Ukrainians right now have 18 or 20, I think, HIMARS system. They have about 15 M270, which is exactly the same system, just tracked, and it takes two pots at the same time instead of one. For GMLRS rockets, this is enough because of the range that the GMLRS have with almost 90 kilometers. If the Ukrainians should get M26, right, uh, which have a range that is much shorter, I think 30 kilometers, and which are also meant not to be that precise, you just need to fire it in the general direction with GMLRS, you can program it to hit a molehill 90 kilometers away. But you need to find the molehill 90 kilometers away and you need to exactly mensurate its GPS coordinates. With an M26, you can see a football field 30 kilometers away and you can quickly hit it because the cluster munitions will just rain down and kill everything. And you don't need to have to be that precise. When you, if Ukraine should get M26 rockets from the United States, from South Korea, from Greece, from Turkey, maybe from uh, Egypt or from Israel, Israel not probably, then the Ukrainians will need a lot, a lot more HIMARS system because you have to have them more dispersed because the range is a third of the GMLRS rocket. So you will need three times more HIMARS. And since that M26 rocket has much more use in a offensive because you can just devastate and kill and butcher Russian entire trench systems in one go with that. The Ukrainians will need more HIMARS systems, which can only come from the United States stock because the US Army has about 100 extra, which are not superfluous, but it's like the reserve that if the United States always does like this. If some system breaks down, they can pull one out of storage and give to that unit. So the unit never has a system or two systems missing. In Europe, if you have 18 HIMARS in a battalion and one breaks down, until that one is fixed, you only have 17. In the US Army, if one breaks down, the next day you have again 18 because you pulled one from storage. So the US Army has some 100 HIMARS systems in storage, so the Ukrainians could get some. The US Army will not be happy because it undercuts its own readiness to have enough spares, but you know, the president, if he wants it, he can will it. So yeah, I would like Ukraine to get more HIMARS systems, but it makes only sense if they get the M26 rockets and not just 10, they should get 100,000 M26 rockets because if you have 100,000 M26 rockets, I guarantee you, you kill 100,000 Russians with those. Give me a few more, please. Elian? No, seriously, um, what you just said is exactly true. 
This is a matter of taking away mass. This is a matter of killing Russian soldiers, making sure that they cannot further rape, loot, suppress, and be in theater, thinning them out, reducing their capacity. That's all this is about. All right. Wait a second. I have to yes. say quickly one thing about a basic NATO change in unit and technology. During the Cold War, NATO had a massive amount of M270 launchers, which launched the M26 rockets. Why? Because obviously you wanted to kill the Soviets before they reach your own troops, but also because of the lack of precision and the short range. And NATO over the last 30 years has gone in completely on precision-guided munitions with extended range which meant you need much less launchers, be it aircraft, be it a HIMAR system, be it frigates and so on, because instead of launching 20 rockets for that reach 30 kilometers behind the enemy lines and you hope to destroy everything you want, with the precision-guided munitions, you can reach further and you know if you mensurated the target correctly, which you have the correct GPS coordinates, you will with 100% certainty with one missile or one Excalibur shall destroy the enemy target. So the reason um, that 18 GMLRS systems fired, 18 HIMARS systems with GMLRS were enough to completely break up the Russian offensives last summer is because NATO's precision has such an advantage, especially in striking deep behind enemy lines, that if you focus on precision strikes, you don't need more than 18 HIMARS. The moment you give the Ukrainians the M26, which are not precision strikes, but just dropping cluster munitions, you go back to mass, and mass means you need a lot, a lot more HIMARS systems. So NATO doctrine has changed over the last 30 years, like almost all European air forces in the Cold War had between 500 and seven, like France, Germany, Italy, UK, had between 500 and 600 fighter jets because the fighter jets had to fly to a target area, look for an enemy, and then drop the bombs in flight while steering the plane to, basically towards the enemy and in the right moment release the bombs, which then would glide or tumble down onto the enemy and you hope that you hit it. And today with 200 planes and precision guided munitions, laser guided, GPS guided and so on, you can achieve much better results because you don't have to have two fighter jets drop eight bombs towards an enemy tank to be sure that it's destroyed. You have, you have just one fighter jet drop one point, uh, drop one bomb with laser guided uh, steering and kit onto that tank because you know it will be with 100% precision be destroyed. So precision allows NATO to reduce the mass of equipment it has. Ukraine doesn't have all of this precision, so they, use, they need more mass. There's, NATO fights wars differently than anyone else. And that's the reason, for example, why the Chinese have 3 million military, because they don't fight with precision. They still think about mass. 
That's why the Russians were going with artillery like bonkers and firing whole cities into the ground because they still go with mass. Ukraine is a hybrid, partially NATO with precision, partially still the Soviet or old olden times, let's say, system of mass. So we can't really compare NATO to Ukraine because NATO has a completely different way of fighting than anyone else in the world. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And it is unbecoming to the West not supplying Ukraine with the support systems. If we can't give them the tech which they would need in order to win by means of pure precision, then we at least have to give them the mass. But there we go. All righty. Uh, we have questions up still. Lexicon, then Kerry, then Gregory, then uh, Alan, then Bam Bam. Lexicon. Hi, thank you. Yeah, though I did have the same uh, point that um, just uh, can't remember who just mentioned that um, Blinken yesterday made the earth shattering remark that what Ukraine does with the weapons we supply them is uh, their own business. And we're not telling them we don't encourage them to attack inside Russia, but it's their decision. So I'm amazed we didn't uh, we haven't been talking about it here on the space. But anyway, um, this sounds well, various news organizations have made much of it. So that sounds good. But the other thing is that it sounds like these attacks, they're still, America is still sitting on this asymptotic curve that never ever gets to the point, never gets to yes. So they never make the decision, but they're still saying, and they're still saying that even if and when they make this decision, it's going to take them 10 months to get them there for some I cannot comprehend what these reasons are, but I just wondered what you have heard about this and what do you think? And are they really going to do this? That They're going to finally decide and then they're going to put it in some incredible long train that's never going to get here till, till we're almost done, till we're already done Crimea and so on. Do you know anything about this? Thank you. The U.S., except for Abrams tanks and ground launch small diameter bombs, when there was an announcement of a weapon system being given to Ukraine, within a few days it was there. Or within a few days the training began. Like Patriot was announced and a week later the training in the United States began. HIMARS HIMARS was announced and the first system were the next day in Ukraine. With Abrams tank, the Ukrainians are not getting new ones, but they get U.S. Marine Corps Abrams tanks, which are being retired. But again, since the United States has a depleted uranium mesh inside those tanks, which are classified, not, not the material, not the depleted uranium is classified, but the construction of the mesh is classified. It is so classified that there's a factory in the United States, we don't know where, where this mesh from depleted uranium is produced and then it's encased in various layers so that no one, no one that gets its hand on one of those plates can look inside and if you try to break it open, you destroy the mesh. So what the United States has told the Ukrainians, you get Abrams tank, but we remove the mesh. So the Ukraine, because 
the Russians, the value in an Abrams tank is to understand the construction of that mesh because the mesh is a mix of depleted uranium and some rubbers, which if the tank is hit, heat projectiles create a particle stream, a hypersonic particle stream made of copper particles that uh, fails a hole through the tank and then inside detonates ammunition. This mesh is constructed to, on, upon, upon impact from such a stream to wobble and move and basically slice this stream in little parts that then dissipate in that rubber depleted uranium mesh. And the other thing, there's penetrators, which are created from heavy metals depleted uranium or tungsten or something like that, that hit a tank and through their kinetic energy push through the tank's hull. And the thing is once those kinetic penetrators hit this mix of rubber and depleted uranium mesh, the construction of the mesh, which is so classified, no one has any idea how it looks, how thick it is, how it's even produced or what it contains. That mesh basically breaks these uh, penetrators into brittle pieces that dissipate in the tank arm armor. So the United States is, comp this was developed in the 80s and it's being used since 87, I think. So the United States is paranoid about this mesh. They're not letting, nobody knows outside the factory where they make it, how it looks. Nobody has seen it. People have seen the plates, which encase in a ceramic resin, resin, resin. What is pech in English? Resin, resin, resin? Resin. That comes, resin, resin. yeah. Resin. So a resin ceramic mix inside are these meshes. And the Ukrainians have to wait for the Abrams because the United States is taking these plates out and destroying them in a secret facility again. So nobody has ever seen what's inside. And the Ukrainians get instead standard plates of depleted uranium with some metal steel plates in the middle, which are less which offer less protection, but still are enough to defeat 99% of Russian tank ammunition. So, but, but yeah, I was asking mm -hmm. about the attackums with, I yeah. don't know if I said Abram. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an idea. So the United States, the Abrahams have been delayed because of that. Ground launched small diameter bombs. A are a new product. Boeing is, has to have, Boeing had to set up a production line, which is right now coming online to produce that glide bomb that can be fired from a HIMARS system for Ukraine. Those are the only two systems that the Ukrainians had to wait for. Now, attack camps, there's a thousand lying in United States depots. Tomorrow, Colby Bracho, I think, a Canadian, is going to do an attack camp strat. And I know from a person who worked with him, he managed to trace every single ever produced attack camps missile. He has exactly the numbers. So tomorrow we will see. The thing is that the United States has a ton of attack camps with cluster munitions, which they wanted to destroy 
or used in the Korean Peninsula against the North Koreans, or wanted to rebuild in attack camps with one high-explosive warhead. If Biden decides to give Ukraine the attack camps with cluster munitions, they can be in Ukraine in the time it takes to fly them from Fort Sill to Poland, put them on a truck and bring them to the front. If Biden decides that Ukraine should not get the cluster munition versions, it will take just a little bit longer because then the United States military is telling Lockheed Martin those thousand or something attack camps with cluster munitions, you will have to rebuild them into those with the unitary high explosive warhead. How many can you rebuild? Then Lockheed Martin says like a hundred every two months. And then Ukraine will get a hundred every two months while in parallel Boeing is replacing those for the US military. So attack camps can be very quickly in Ukraine or within a few weeks, it depends on which version Biden signs off to. As the Germans are right now integrating Taurus in Ukrainian fighter jets, and Scholz's condition was, I will only allow Taurus to be integrated in Ukrainian fighter jets and be used if Biden sends attack camps, there has to have been a decision taken in Washington which convinced Scholz that it is time to begin the preparation for the use of towers. So, when will it be announced? Next week, Zelensky is in D.C. Biden will stand next to Zelensky. I will be watching that and very carefully listen because that is a moment the United States still has a $5 billion presidential authority to draw down equipment for Ukraine immediately. Like this equipment, $5 billion, can be taken out of storage and given to Ukraine. It hasn't yet. It hasn't also been announced what Ukraine is getting. But these $5 billion must be given to Ukraine until the 30th of September, if not, the money returns to the department which has the United States the finance department. So I assume that Biden will stand next to Zelensky and is going to announce the biggest weapons package for Ukraine yet. Not because it all makes sense, but Biden knows he has to use up those five billion until the 30th of September, or the money is lost for Ukraine, and he looks like an old idiot because he didn't manage to give Ukraine the weapons, even though Congress told him to spend another five billion on weapons for Ukraine. So I assume there's preparations going on. I assume the United States military and the Ukrainians are training on these systems. I assume the Ukrainians will have these systems the day Biden and Zelensky hold their press conference in the White House. I'm hopeful. How many more M1 Abrams will he get out of the 5 billion? Uh, probably 270, the rest of the Marine Corps Abrams that the Polish didn't take. Because the Thank Polish you very took, much. 
the Polish took a lot, but the Poles already said long time ago they would rather have new built ones because the new built ones get a the United States has managed to improve the mesh and replace the depleted uranium with an unknown substance that they cooked up in one of their labs. No one knows what kind of substance they cooked up that is denser than depleted uranium and more uh, useful than depleted uranium. And the Polish told the Americans they're buying hundreds of Abrams tanks if they get it with this new mesh. No one knows how this mesh looks and no one knows what material is now used in it. Not depleted uranium. It's something denser and better and nobody knows what material it is. It's not a material that existed before. The United States created some new material and we don't know if it's metal or if it's a ceramic or whatever, or it's uh, nobody knows. And the Poles got a deal. They are the first nation on the planet that are allowed to buy the tanks, but they are not allowed to take the tanks apart to look at the mesh. So um, the Poles already said, if you know the Ukra Americans sell them this new tank version, they will give happily to the Ukrainians the Marine Corps tanks. So hopefully this package includes some 270 Abrams tanks because, again, the United States was like the, the Ukrainians can have 31 Abrams tanks, but we take out the mesh plates and they had to figure out a production line to do it. Now the production line has been set up and it can be done much more quickly. So the Ukrainians could get a lot of Abrams tanks and thanks to the production line now being set up, those tanks could arrive much faster. Exactly my point. And uh, let's hope that uh, I, I really uh, would find it absolutely detrimental to the future perception of the United States of America, its armed forces, and its willingness to commit if only 31 N1 Abrams were in play. And there's so much more which can be achieved by means of pushing others forward if the United States actually makes a real commitment, and that's definitely required. And um, let's see. All righty. So we have Kerry, we have Gregory, then Alan, then John. Kerry. Hi, Thomas. Thanks very much for joining us again. So you've bottomed off um, one of the things I was going to ask you about, which is uh, what do you what did you think was going to happen on Thursday, that meeting with Biden? And it was interesting to see, it felt like in preparation for that, the Blinken, um, the Blinken comment on the, the removal of the restriction on use of the American weapons on Russian territory. Um, so I'm going to ask you instead, how do you think Zelensky should handle the meeting at the UN on Wednesday? Because I'm imagining that in terms of preparations for that, the Russians have probably been riving quite a few of the emerging economies, um, the, uh, the sort of South Latin Americans, um, other parts of the world in preparation for that meeting on Wednesday. Putin's obviously not going to be there. I don't think Zelensky's been there in person as yet. How do you think he should handle it? Because um, there's been a couple of times we've seen him quite rightly being impatient, but it's not turned out well for him politically. 
how would you think he's going to get the best out of that situation? Difficult, difficult, because my opinion is a bit radical. My opinion would be that Ukraine should push for a demand that Russia, this small country with this small economy, this dictatorship, should be replaced in the UN Security Council with a nation that is democratic, has a billion population, and is a nuclear power, India, because that way you divide the South and the BRICS because the Indians will jump at the occasion to replace Russia in the Security Council to get on par with China and to piss off the Chinese. And the thing is that whatever Zelensky does, though, he has to coordinate with the Europeans and the Americans because they need to approve of his political suggestions first and support it. Because if Zelensky goes out there and says something, yeah, the United Kingdom should rejoin the European Union immediately, the United Kingdom might not be really pleased. So you have to coordinate, speak, discuss with the West what he can do. But personally, I think the best course of action would be to offer India Russia's seat in the National Security Inter, uh, Union Security Council because then you would have India basically trying to get the global south behind India's position to be the replacement for Russia. You know, like uh, China replaced Taiwan in, I think, 1972 or 1973, the UN Security Council. So this would be an excellent, excellent move on whoever wants to support Ukraine, because for the Russians, that would mean that they would have to expend an immense amount of money and political capital to find a possibility to basically counter India. And you basically would drive a massive wedge between India and Russia, because Russia would then basically be infuriated if India accepts that offer. And India cannot really say no to that offer, because India is the second biggest country in the world. It's a nuclear power. And its biggest rival is China, and China is on the UN Security Council, and India is the leader of the uh, non-aligned nations. So basically, India, you could drive a massive wedge between the BRICS and Russia and India and so on by Zelensky going out there and say, India deserves this seat more than anyone. <laughs> and you would also then make the Brazilians go nuts because at one hand, the Brazilians would love to replace, uh, to have a country from the South in the Global Security Council. And, you know, but uh, then supporting India would mean to uh, alienate Russia. And if you support Russia, you would piss off India. So you can um, divide and conquer. You can really, really wreck this alliance of the BRICS by telling India you should be in the Security Council and we will support you. And That's I bloody would, hilarious and brilliant, Thomas. I love it. I would love to do it. But the thing is that Zelensky can only do it if the UK, France, Germany and the United States support it. I'm pretty sure the UK would be like jumping at it because, I mean, the UK is ruled by Indians and by Pakistanis right now. Uh, it's like <laughs> if, if people tell me the United States is an immigration nation, I'm kind of like, no, it isn't. The real immigration number one nation where people from all backgrounds are accepted and welcomed is the UK, where the prime minister, the mayor of London and the uh, first minister of Scotland are obviously children of immigrants. And I heard nothing in England 
No one is complaining. There is no racism. Imagine if a person of Indian heritage would be the United States president. They already took Obama badly the right in the United States. They would lose their mind if a Rishi Sunak would be the United States president. So I have there's stuff to criticize about the UK, criticize about the UK, but the amount of the UK the British people accepting immigrants, welcoming them and voting for them and not complaining about that, it's amazing. So long story short, with all its shortcomings, I still admire the United Kingdom a lot for all of that. Last point, UN Security Council, uh, UN General Assembly session, Zelensky has to list Russian war crimes and clearly state that this is an anti-colonial struggle. He has to bite the bullet and say Ukraine was a colony of Russia. This is a liberation movement. We do not wish to be again a colony of a nation that has enslaved us for centuries. And the nations in Africa and South America that were colonies, he has to basically tell them if they stand with the colonizer here, they betray their own history. Again, it will need uh, the support of the Europeans and the close allies for Zelensky to say that. Um, so I don't know what ultimately he will say, but I have my idea how you could really wrench, throw a, throw a, ven <laughs> throw a wrench into the BRICS, uh, lose not alliance, just the BRICS nations. And yeah, I'm looking for, this week will be very interesting. I will be working most of the time because I have to do presentations. That's why I also will have to not make a tiny ton till four in the morning. I will have to go back to my presentations later. But I will watch Zelensky's speech and I will very, very closely watch Zelensky and Biden's press conference. And I would love to see Zelensky meet India's Modi because just meeting him will drive the Russians nuts. Fair enough. All righty. Uh, Gregory. Yes, sir. Um, Thomas, thanks for coming on again. And if you've already answered this question, please ignore it. But you mentioned spare parts. I saw that DOD was shipping over like a truck size 3D printer. Any details on what that can do and that make a dent in the need for spare parts? Absolutely. The United States military is wildly bullish on 3D printers because right now you have to ship spare parts from the U.S. factories all over the world to fix something. If you have a 3D printer somewhere, you just download the um, specifications of the part you need and you print it out. And there is trucks where basically there's... Uh, um, massive long lines of uh, material that you can use and just pull in to print. Um, um, the thing is, it doesn't need to be as sturdy as a steel part, you know, because if it breaks after two weeks, you have used that equipment for two weeks, fantastic, and then you print the next spare part. It's no drama. So um, 3D printing is going to revolution revolutionize uh, logistics in spare parts especially. That the U.S. is giving Ukraine one is a good sign, but you know, in the future, every division should have two or three of those so they can uh, print spare parts 24-7, even if one of them is damaged or destroyed, because uh, 
everything you don't have to ship over from continental United States to a division is a, a massive improvement of your logistics. If you just have to uh, ship over basically as trucks full of material to use in the printers, it's so much easier because you can just make a truck full instead of you have to put in six springs and four screws and two plates and so on. It's not going to replace uh, armor plates. It's not going to replace reactive armor plates. It's not going to replace gun sights, but small uh, spare parts that, you know, that are a nuisance to carry around and are not essential. This will massively, massively improve it. So lucky that they did it. The United States military is giving Ukraine some of its best equipment, also in air defense systems and this 3D printing system and so on. Because I can tell you the U.S. Army is definitely looking at the Ukrainians, telling them every day, so how is it going? How is it being used? Anything that we should learn. We want to know what lessons we should draw from that. Because right now, if you are a military, you learn by talking to the Ukrainians more that you can learn in three years of studying and wargaming. Because the Ukrainians will come back and tell you, forget that. It's like this. How do you adjust to drones? You don't. You just live with it. And such things, you know, that the NATO armies, they, they, they come up with all kinds of jammers that soldiers have to carry around that weigh 20 kilos and have giant batteries that run out. And the Ukrainians are like, forget it. These jammers are just impossible for us to drag around on the front. And they're so cumbersome, let it be. It's either Gepard systems or nothing. So yeah, militaries are learning an intense immense and intense amount of things right now. Alrighty, thank you for that. And we'll have to actually go to Alan and then afterwards to John, Bam Bam and then Nicilius. So, Alan, please. Uh, thank you, Axel. Two very quick questions. Thomas? We just lost, we just, sorry, no. So apologies, oh. carry on. Okay. Carry on. Uh, two very quick questions, Thomas. Uh, where do you think Russian troops are best deployed strategically and tactically, and where are they worst deployed uh, on the battle line right now? And secondly, what is the purpose of Russia uh, maintaining a supposed uh, superiority of forces roughly between Bakhmut and Kremlin? What could their purpose be there? Um, the Russians are most thinly the Russian lines are most thin and most undermanned and have least equipment all along the Dnieper River. The Russian belief is that the Ukrainians will not cross the river. The Russian belief is also that if the Ukrainians do it, their infantry will be able to hold the Ukrainians long enough off that the Russians can move two, three brigades from the front in Zaporozhye to the Kherson Dnieper front. So there the Russians are thinnest. Um, where are the Russians best set up? Basically, where the Ukrainians haven't attacked in the south. Because there, where the Ukrainians haven't attacked in the south, the Russian troops are still sitting in their trenches behind those immense minefields. And they don't have much to worry about. And where the Ukrainians have attacked, the Russians are in a bad shape. And the thing is that the Russians so far haven't broken the line. The Russians still have enough reserves that if a unit bleeds out, 
uh, panics or retreats or rebels, they can replace it with a VDV unit or a Russian semi-professional unit. So um, it's a really, really difficult question because the Russians have now done a, a system like the Germans in World War II where the Germans placed a Volkssturm division, which was basically old men that had their training in World War I and were equipped just with some basic rifles, grenades, and machine guns, and placed next to them, left or right, a elite division. Why? Because basically, if the Allies hit the elite division, the elite division, like a Waffen-SS division or a tank division, would stand. If the Allies found out that there's a Volkssturm division, they would attack there and overrun it. But those old men would give the Americans and British enough trouble for a few hours so the tank divisions to the left or the SS divisions to the right could turn around and attack the Allies in their flanks. So there was always like an elite division, a shit division, an elite division, a shit division. And the Russians have been doing now the same. There's a Bars battalion, which is basically mobilized men that don't want to fight, next to a VDV paratroopers battalion, next to a Bars battalion, next to a tank battalion, next to a Bars battalion, and so on. So the Russians have used that basically garbage units between the elite units that remain to fill out the front. And the elite units are basically, you will stand in there under pressure and the other units will run, the shitty units. Then the elite units will basically have to quickly wear towards left or right to take the Ukrainians in the flank and try to plug the gap. They can do it because the elite units are not being attacked and they can send a part of their units to the flank and attack the Ukrainians that are attacked there. So the, the Russians, like in so many things, have learned from the Nazis. And yeah, and for now that still works, even though. The bars units continuously start to break and are brittle and are overly overpowered. The Russians then manage to pull in other units from left or right to close the gap for some day and so on. Still, it always degrades the Russians. It always costs them troops. It kills many of their best elite units because they have to go out of their trenches and attack the Ukrainians in the flank, which makes them susceptible to cluster munitions. So um, the whole thing is a massive battle. It's a battle that we haven't seen on this continent since World War II, because everything else were just like the Yugoslavia wars, and that were all small-scale engagement compared to that. Um, where are the Russians best positioned? There in the south, where the Ukrainians haven't attacked yet, because they sit behind their trench lines, but all else, the front becomes every day more brittle. And what was the second question it's about Crimea? Uh, what is the purpose of Russia maintaining superiority of forces roughly between Bakhmut and Kremlin? I assume that the Russians want to protect the, If the Ukrainians should break through, they could um, march to what was the city behind there, Severodonetsk, Donetsk, the next city behind, which is a key Russian supply line. And I assume the Russians are afraid that the Ukrainians could break through and then sever that uh, rail line that goes from where the Russians still keep going in with uh, supply trains. So I assume the Russians keep that there to secure behind it the supply line. Because honestly, um, where the Russians need right now most troops is in the south, 
uh, that they don't move them from this sector southwards tells me that there's a fear in the Russian high command that a breakthrough there will lead to some trouble for the front in Luhansk sector. And yes, if the Ukrainians would break through and march to Severodonetsk and those other cities behind there, they would split the Russian Luhansk front and could then take it either uh, march south or march north and basically force the Russians to retreat. The thing is that I don't think the Ukrainians have any intentions to attack there. But since the Ukrainians keep one of their best brigades in that sector, the Swedish brigade that was equipped and trained by Sweden, I think the Russians still have the fear that there could be an attack. Will there be one? I don't know. If the Ukrainians see a gap, a possibility, they will attack. But I think this is more of a demonstration so the Ukrainian give the Russians the idea that there could be an attack to force the Russians to keep troops in that sector, even though the Ukrainians have no. A bit like Gettysburg, where Lee had his, uh, his, Lee had his left flank demonstrate in front of the Union lines to keep the Union troops there on their toes and unable to move, while actual attack was in the, uh, to the orchard in the right flank of Lee towards Cemetery Ridge. So same thing, you know, you try to demonstrate in front of the enemy to keep part of its troop in the Kremina and Bakhmut sector while actual attack is somewhere else. But then again, we are speculating here because the Ukrainians might have completely different intentions and maybe Ukrainians really want to attack in that sector and the Russians know it. Uh, so we are always speculating here because the Ukrainian general staff is not leaking even a single word of their plans, which is amazing. Very well. John, good evening. Good evening, Axel. Uh, Thomas, do, do you mind if we pull this back to air defence? Um, I, I know you touched on this some time ago now, but I, I just had a question around that issue. Uh, sorry, wait, microphone. Go for it. Ask me. Any, we can go back and forth. I don't mind any questions. Okay, cool. Thank you. So, uh, as you as you rightly mentioned, um, the Russians are, are obviously now building up their capacity to manufacture drones on an industrial scale, you know, be that Lancet, Shahid copies, whatever. Um, but we can ex we can expect them to be employed uh, in a major campaign this winter. You would suspect against probably fixed infrastructure. What I've been wondering, really, since in fact, since last winter, um, and and expected to see movement in this direction, it hasn't happened. Um, would be for the uh, the old Bofors L60 or the, the, the updated BAE L70 um, 40 millimeter gun, um, which the integration work with the Giraffe A and B fire control radar has, has already been done in several countries. So that's, that's not a complicated problem. Um, and that can be then combined with the high explosive fragmentation ammunition, which I think for fixed infrastructure sites and thickening up air defense, um, it, it just seems mad to me that we haven't scoured the world for the thousands of examples of these weapon systems that are out there and actually got them in bulk into, into Ukraine to actually thicken up the, the air defense belts. Um, 
because you network together, I think they could be really effective against slow-moving, low-flying drones. And I just don't really understand why that hasn't happened. Me neither. So, um, yeah, the thing is that the Ukrainians have proven, proven that anti-aircraft guns combined with a radar are excellent. Gepard is an almost 50-year-old system, and it's one of the most efficient air defense systems the world has seen. Because those cheap drones, the Gepard is the system to shoot them down because it's just stunning how this radar with a simple laser um, rangefinder can hit them. Um, L60, L70s, uh, they would work too. Ukraine already has the ammunition because the CV-9040 uses that ammunition and the 40 millimeter ones. Uh, I don't know why they didn't put it in there. Maybe because they're not mobile and, you know, you can't then... A, a Gepard shoots down stuff and then moves and the Russians, if they hit the spot where the Gepard was, they hit an empty field. The L-16 and L-70s would be stationary so the Russians could try to hit them while the L-70s definitely could shoot down uh, drones if they get attacked by a cruise missiles, then it's 50-50 the chance that they can shoot it down. If a ballistic missile comes in, the L-70s are just hopelessly kind of ballistic missiles, only the Patriot system has been proven that Patriot can shoot down and does shoot down 100% of Russian ballistic missiles because it was designed to do that in its version, the PAC uh, MSE and the PAC other versions, the CR post reduction initiative, CRI version and the PAC MSE version. So yeah, uh, I don't know. The thing is that the Ukrainians might don't need it because they still have a ton of Soviet systems. Maybe there's not enough giraffe radars around. So there's some questions that you know we don't know the answer to. The thing is, since all the defense companies in Europe doing whatever they can to get a deal to supply Ukraine with something, so I suspect that the European-American defense contractors just didn't see the possibility to integrate hundreds of those with enough giraffe radars in the time frame given because there's not enough giraffe radars. So that's my suspicion. But I'm just uh, spitballing here. I have no idea if that's the reason or if the Ukrainians didn't want it or if there's an ammunition, ammunition issue or the stationary target being an issue. So I don't know what is the reason here. But um, I know that the Ukrainians got some L-70s from the Estonians and I think the Latvians and the Ukrainians and put them on bags of trucks and have been using them to use them as direct fire cannons to basically soften up Russian trenches because those impacts of those 40 millimeter rounds from the L-70 basically punched through the Russian sandbags. So yeah, I don't know what the reason is. There's some speculation. We can speculate maybe about what the reason is, but I have no certainty here. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I just, I just wondered if there was a, a blinding the obvious reason that that I was missing. Um, I mean, the, the shortage of the shortage of potential fire control radars. I mean, yes, clearly that does make sense. Um, but yeah, it seemed. I mean, we don't know. We don't know the real reason. We don't know it. No, no, for sure. But um, I mean, yeah. But as, as you know, going through a a process of deduction that that makes sense um, as to one reason why it may not have happened. One, one other thing, um, and again, it was to one of your statements earlier on. Um, I mean, great that the, the Ukrainian guys are training on the Taurus now, but 
What I don't understand, I don't quite understand, and this is going from the, the sort of the tactical right back up to the strategic again. I don't really understand um, Schultz's position um, making the the deployment of various weapon systems conditional on what and when the United States is prepared to give. When certainly in the case of the, the you know the Storm Shadow and the Scalp, obviously the the Brits and the French have been quite happy to put those systems in there. So in that respect of not not going first, he already had that cover. So I I I. I just trying to understand if there is a logic, what you think the logic is for the conditionality with regards to we will do it if America does it, but you know the um, our European allies are you know that's not sufficient reasoning for us to do it. In my view, based I'm a German speaker. I know the German. I follow the German news. I have given up watching German talk shows because they only invite cretins, morons, idiots, and scum. So I don't watch that. But if you look at German political landscape, my high suspicion is Scholz's party is full of people that are either pro-Russia or being blackmailed by Russia. Because if you believe all those German backbench parliamentarians from the SPD under Schröder were invited to Russia, first-class tickets, suites in hotels, to speak at some conference just because the Russians wanted to hear them speak, you're sorely mistaken. They were all invited to be honeypotted by hot Russian girls or hot Russian boys being filmed and then blackmailed. So my high suspicion is that Schultz knows half his party or at least a large swath of his parliamentarians are just waiting in the wings to sabotage the help for Ukraine and bring back, I mean, Gerhard Schroeder, the most corrupt person on this planet, and a crook, in the, like an amazing crook, is working with other German lefty communist loons, really loons, on a new left Russia-friendly party. Basically, it's a party that will be like, what are your political points? We love Russia, we support Putin, and these people are working on that. And there's at least one person from the Communist Party, the Linke, and there's Schroeder, former SPD boss. and Rekindling, still the... rekindling his uh, previous uh, frenemyship with uh, yes. uh, Oscar Lafontaine, the husband of that wonderful woman who is the representative of the Linke. Yeah. So basically, there are people that are loons, people that are corrupt, and Schroeder is trying to create a pro-Russia party and split Scholz's SPD. And I think this is a solely, purely inner party problems that Scholz faces. And the moment the Americans do it, Scholz can go like, you know, if the United States does this, and we as Germans who are allies with the US don't do it, we make such a bad figure, we just have to, you know, we can't do it um, when the US is doing it. So he's basically using the US as a cover to um, basically beat his party into line, knowing full well that if Schroeder launches this party, he might lose so many parliamentarians that his coalition becomes wobbly. Not because those people are convinced Russia lovers, but I, I, I can tell you that if you went to Russia 
as a German CEO, high-level corporations or CFO or something, and you got a security company first to tell you what precautions as a high-powered CEO to take in Russia. I kid you not, one of the key suggestions was they will put up you up in a suite. They will even upgrade you to a suite, not because they love you and they want to please you. No, they want you to get into the room with all the cameras. If you absolutely have to check in Moscow while you are there, you rent an Airbnb randomly from the internet. You go there, you check, you leave. Nobody has filmed you. And if you even are in the Ritz in Moscow or in one of the Western hotels, believe me, there are rooms filled with cameras by the Russians. So if you think all those SPD people and all those German CEOs who went to Russia and didn't take any precautions, they love Russia out of the purity of their heart. Half of them know they did something very wrong in Russia. And the basic principle that you do not do anything illegal in Russia that you do not do anything incriminating in Russia. That was instilled in everyone visiting Russia, the Soviet Union, during the Cold War. It was given up in the last 20 years. And people are like, yeah, just go to Russia. It's a normal country. Like if you go to London, nobody's going to film you in the Langham if you're hanging out with a hooker in your room. Nobody's going to film you in the Waldorf Astoria in New York if you hang out with some strange people in your room in Moscow. If you're a VIP from Europe or the US and you arrive, they will always upgrade you into the suite with the cameras. And that was told by European security camera companies to everyone who asked them, never, just go to Russia. The only thing you do in your room is sit around and stare at the wall. That gives the Russians nothing. Don't do drugs. Don't masturbate or run out naked and sing. Don't do anything anything that you don't want to have on the internet or on the TV news. And there's a ton of European, British, parliamentarians, professor, business people, local council members from German local parliaments in Mecklenburg. It's a counterintelligence nightmare, right? Because those people have not reported all the things that they were approached in blackmail or in corruption and so on. So if you think that in the SPD, those people that are somehow supporting Russia silently right now, do it so out of pure love for Putin. You're mistaken. There are hundreds, if not thousands of Europeans, high-level people that have been caught on camera in Russia. And if you were, let's say you were a local, you sat in the German local parliament in the city of Hamburg and the Russians suddenly invited you to a conference in St. Petersburg to talk about concert house building and you should give a speech and you were told first class ticket driver brings you three days all expenses paid and you get a suite. If you had any little bit of brain, you knew why the Russians wanted you to come and you would just sit in your room and look at the wall and smile and the Russians would go nuts because you don't give them any material. I can tell you, I can, I can tell you from a German CEO who went to a restaurant 
he sat down with some other business people. There were tons of girls and some basically turned to him and smiled at him. And one of them basically showed she wasn't wearing any underwear in the restaurant. And he pretty much understood he is being honey trapped. The CEO of a German finance company, I personally know from Munich. He went to the bathroom. He came out of the bathroom and that girl without underwear was standing in the door and tried to drag him back into the bathroom. And he basically went, left the restaurant, went to the hotel, got his stuff, rented an Airbnb for one night, and then left Russia the next day because he understood they're trying to get him to do something to then have material. And even if you go to China, people, if you go to these nations from a counterintelligence perspective, I can only tell you, don't do stupid shit. And even if you're a citizen that just goes to Russia, don't bring your wheat or your joints or don't go buy marijuana because the Russians have an excuse to arrest you and use you as a hostage. And you can spend years in a Russian prison that way if you just, just remember the Russians and the Chinese are doing anything out of their goodness of their heart. If they want you to come to them, there's a nefarious reason okay uh, and from the basketball well, news it, from the basketball news we should probably you, move on axel do you mind if i just come back sure as yeah. long as we don't talk about weed uh, any further no no i was gonna say i think i think thomas is assuming i'm much more fun than i am but um yeah he's uh russia was on my no-fly list but he's he's slowly selling it to me there's no question about that um but back to back to the germany point of view um, I think the, the interesting thing here, or another interesting thing here, um, is that the Germans, while, while this is going on internally, um, the Americans are eating their lunch. Uh, and there was a, a conference on in the last few days at the Hudson Institute in the US. And they had official government representatives, ministers, ambassadors, etc., from nine um, Central and Eastern European countries, uh, and sat down on the on the stage and said something that we have said on this space repeatedly over the last eighteen months, which was, you know, you as as national capitals haven't as analysts as politicians haven't been listened to by us by Western Europe. Um, you knew what was going on. You knew the score. We didn't listen to you. We've now acknowledged that, but there is still very much a sense that having acknowledged that, we're still not listening to you. Um, and you know, we, we are looking very much with this conference to actually begin the change in that respect um, and to put your, your voices or to privilege your voices very much more than they have been within the US strategic discourse. And you can, you can kind of sense that, I mean, it's, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be Hans Morgenthau to see this coming. Um, the Americans are very smartly now, in my, in my view, um, reaching out to that whole belt of Central and Eastern and Northern, Northern, Central and Eastern Europe um, and positioning themselves really in the space that you would have expected to certainly... Um, Germany and France to want to occupy, uh, and I've only I've only battled through the first few hours of this conference, but it's it's on YouTube on the on Hudson's page, 
Um, and it's actually, it's a really interesting listen. If you get the time, it's well worth listening to. Um, but with that, I'll, I'll step down and give somebody else a go. Thank you. Thank you, John. I will check it out. And yeah, the Eastern Europeans, you know, the thing is, I speak bad Russian. And you know, the, the moment I understood that Russia is on a horrible path is when I saw the Russian World War II movies that were produced after 2012, because those are absolutely fascist movies. Everybody in Eastern Europe understood the science because they speak Russian. They understood what kind of blood and uh, uh, fatherland and sacrifice for the Führer shit the Russians were producing and talking about. And in Western Europe, nobody wanted to understand it. And they didn't speak the language, so they didn't really get it. So yeah, the Eastern Europeans, due to their language knowledge and to their occupation by Russia, they, they saw the signs. And I can tell you that all those intelligence agencies in the East have a better penetration of the Russian layers of government than the Western intelligence agency, which focused only basically on helping Western companies get deals in Russia by knowing who to bribe instead of... Um, finding the people that could warn us about Russian evil intentions. All righty. Uh, my colleague, uh, Sir Shaggy, has a question. Yeah, Thomas. Uh, I'm coming to the end of my 12-hour uh, uh, Shaggy-a-thon. Um, so I hope I'm not recorded. Well, I am recorded, but hopefully it won't be used against me. Uh, but my final question would be, um, if Kadyrov is dead, uh, would that have any material effects uh, in Ukraine? Uh, and with that, I will, um, I will drop down after the answer. If he is dead, the real question is the Kadyrovtsi, which is basically the clan of the Kadyrov goons that rule under Kadyrov Chechnya, are hated by most of the Chechens. That is why thousands of them left Russia, moved to Georgia, and, and entered Ukraine to fight against the Russians. Kadyrov's death will require one of his lieutenants to take over and take control because the Chechens would never accept a Russian governor or ruler. So who is he put who would Putin put in a place there? It needs someone to be absolutely ruthless and absolutely loyal. Not many candidates. And every one of those that Putin puts in power will have enemies within the Kadyrovtsi. Once there is a split between those, a civil war between them will start. And that opens up the opportunity for us to do something really, really funny. Inject the Chechen fighters from Ukraine back into Chechnya through Georgia. And yeah, have the whole South Caucasus explode in an orgy of Russian killing, which the Chechens and the other people of the South Caucasus have been doing for most of the 19th century until the Russians finally butchered them enough to suppress them. And in the Soviet times, again, the butchery of Stalin and Lenin kept this area under control. But the people of the Caucasus that would love nothing more to be rid of the Russians. So the death of Kadyrov will lead to Putin having to appoint a successor. Any one of the possible successors will have internal enemies in the Kadyrovtsi gang, which will sooner or later result in violence when it comes to you know, this, um, divide the new dispersion of funds and corruption 
divide the new fiefdoms, how they steal and control the area, and so on. And the new ruler might want to kill some of his former friends and pals or equals in Kadyrov's organization to secure his rule. So there is lots of things that can go wrong. And Kadyrov being a butcher and ruthless, he had still some charisma, you know, and he was followed on Instagram by a ton of people and he had some kind of, his persona was larger than life, but all the guys that he surrounded with himself with are just goons and idiots and none of them has any charisma because Kadyrov didn't want anyone with charisma around him. So um, if he's dead, we look who is his successor. We stoke the internal divisions in the Kadyrovtsi. And then we reinsert all the Chechen fighters from Ukraine into Chechnya with excellent equipment, Western communications and modern weapons, because you know the Chechens didn't have javelin or analog to hit Russian tanks 20 years ago. And now if they have them, well, the Russians don't have any tanks anymore, but you know, still. So there is quite some funny things we can do if Biden and the, let's say British and Ukrainian military intelligence and such things get to go ahead to have fun with the South Caucasus because you can really, really turn that into a hell for the Russians. And we should do that. Yeah, also, also, let's just last sentence which just came to my mind to remind me Putin based his power on butchering the Chechens and showing how ruthless he is. So it would be just fitting that his rule begins to fall apart with Chechnya returning to a lawless state where Russian soldiers are killed on sight. Never forget that there is a video out there of Kadyrov going around randomly choosing Russian prisoners of war and sticking a knife in their throat and then slicing the head off. There's a video from 1997, I think. So... Fitting if Chechnya begins again the descent of Putin's rule into obscurity. Thanks a lot, Thomas. Uh, and with that, I'll bid everyone uh, good night, good morning, good afternoon, and I'll drop down. I'll uh, continue this. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. So from the gold lovers onwards, let's have a look at Massilius. Thanks. Uh, just a quick update. The addition to that, uh, there is also uh, it's also known that Kadyrov had actually burned his doctor alive uh, because he suspected him uh, of poisoning him. But we so do not know that yet. Uh, we have no real confirmation. There's a rumor ongoing at this point in time that he buried him alive, but we have no confirmation. That would be a fun. That would be fun, you know, typically Kadyrov being absolutely brutal and ruthless and delusional and creepy and weird and butchery. And yeah, that sounds like him, but we don't have proof. But anyway, he is, he, I mean, if you watch that video of Kadyrov slicing the throats off, it's like the Islamic State, but in a, because the Islamic State put on a mask and then they slice the heads off. And Kadir, if you see his grinning face when he is like jumping into the throat, like oh, because he was either on drugs or drunk when he did it. So this guy is an absolute psychopath, Kadirov. And if he's dead, the world is a better place. 
Yes, and I also want to to uh, two things actually before before when I raise my hand. First of all, add to the SPD thing because I just read the book, uh, the Moscow Connection, and uh, it's also like uh, a little bit not, not proven for of course that they have this leverage on all of them. But what is proven? And uh, this answer goes more or less to John, and uh, I see he's still around, but not not more as a speaker. You need to know that Schroeder was actually part of a, a cell from uh, Niedersachsen, uh, uh, which has been okay. Yeah, that uh, was uh, very max, uh, very Leninistic, and and uh, kind of on the verge to communism but then he sold all, all his principles more or less to became uh, a big member in, in a, a um, party and then he, he gathered actually all those people around him and after uh, so he's still uh, he's not more the, the chancellor of, of Germany he was still very very influential to most of the figures actually uh, at least this hardcore SPD figures from Hanover which are the real uh, core of the SPD so uh, although we have thought he is only doing his uh, businesses with Gazprom no he was uh, uh, still uh, very influential and uh, there have been ton of things happening around the SPD uh, and Moscow. So, so I really, uh, if you can get get the time to read this book, then then, then it's quite enlightening, and you will see how uh, how rotten actually uh, the society has been in there. But uh, you can, Mercedes, you can yeah. trust me. John knows. Okay, great. Then let's get to the main topic I wanted to address, and it's actually the uh, third from the left uh, tweet I put into a nest because we got also a great um, a diplomat here in, in Germany uh, from Ukraine called Alexei Makayev, uh, most of you will also know, and he has forwarded a great uh, tweet from uh, Timothy Snyder, which you, I've, I'm sure you all also know, and we should not forget that on this date in 1939, uh, uh, acting as an ally of Nazi Germany, the USSR invited Poland, claiming that it was acting to protect national minorities and the Polish state did not exist. And the comment from Makiev was, oh, this reminds me of something. So I just wanted to highlight this. Because same claims as now they are inviting uh, they they are using inviting Ukraine they use exactly to start World War Two from their perspective. So if you don't know now you know. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just saw a question from someone sent me sends me a question the back and there was a question right now how many brigades Ukraine has in the back not yet committed to the fight how many brigades have been rotated out to rest. Exact numbers are difficult to come by, but I count at least 11 brigades that sit in the rear and have not yet been committed for even one day of fighting. They're in the rear, they're being trained, 
by Ukrainian trainers and by a bunch of American non-commissioned officers who are retired and went to Ukraine under own accord to train Ukrainian brigades in certain combat techniques. So um, take it what you will, but they're all retired. That's the key word here, from the military at least. And so these 10 to 11 brigades that I count are in the rear. They have not been committed. One has recently only even been formed, a tank brigade, and it's not yet fully equipped because they, they're getting Leopard 1 tanks and they're arriving still. And how many brigades has Ukraine rotated out of the front to rest? Lately, the information has dried up on that. But before that information has dried up, I counted a dozen brigades that at least partially had been taken out of the front and brought to the rear to be trained or equipped with new equipment. So I counted at least two brigades that were taken out of the front. The one brigade gave all of its Soviet equipment, including the commanders, the drivers, and the mechanics to the other brigade, which became a fully equipped Soviet equipment brigade. And the other brigade began to receive American strikers in the second American striker package. So there's a second striker brigade being equipped. Exactly how many of those 12, it's about a dozen brigades and 11 brigades that haven't been committed. How many of those are still sitting right now today in the rear? Probably most of them, maybe four or five have gone into the front or replaced other brigades that needed a rest. Very difficult to tell. Uh, also very difficult to tell how these 11 brigades that have not been committed, what combat power they have. I'm continuously surprised that some territorial defense brigades with our light infantry have an immense combat prowess because their troops are so motivated and after one and a half years of war, they're really experienced. But difficult to say, but no matter what, if you have more than nine brigades that are rested, ready to go, and equipped for an offensive, you have an offensive core. A core is a formation of at least two to a maximum of four divisions, which is given an operational task. So, for example, the United States has the 18th Airborne Corps. It has the, eight, has the third Armored Corps. It has the fifth corps in Poland. It has the first corps in, first corps in Seattle. First Corps for the Pacific, Fifth Corps for Europe. Third Armored Corps is a fully armored formation. 18th Airborne Corps is obviously airborne units and the mountain division and the 10th Mountain Division. So Ukraine has at least enough units in the rear to form a core. And with a core of nine brigades, you can attempt a breakthrough and a drive to the Azov Sea. So I assume from what I have seen that the Ukrainians are trying to keep at all times one core, which is about nine, ten brigades, in the rear that would be able for a breakthrough and then a quick drive to the sea. And the Ukrainians seem to keep also in the rear a smaller core of six to nine brigades as a follow-on force to secure the flanks and the rear and lines of communication of the one corps that has done the breakthrough. So the Ukrainians are constantly trying to keep enough troops out of the front for the moment that they can break through and drive to the sea and cut off the Russians. 
the brigades have partially changed. Some brigades have not. For example, Cartia. The brigade Cartia is one of the National Guard brigades that is being trained for the offensive. It hasn't gone to the front yet, not one single day. It's still training in the rear. So there are some units that are kept in the rear. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but I can tell that the Ukrainians seem to have this idea that they need to have at least one strong core and one weaker core always in the rear and always ready to go on a moment's notice to execute the offensive once they decide to undertake, not the offensive, to uh, break through the Russian lines and drive to the sea. Once they decide for that, they have the units ready on a moment's notice. Uh, I hope that answered the question of that listener. And now I would like to go to more hands because after the next four hands, I have to go back to my presentations because <laughs> in the background, I see, I see emails coming in that telling me there's a deadline tomorrow. And I know you should be in bed by now, but do you know there's a deadline tomorrow? <laughs> Tell us. Uh, you wouldn't believe, but we both have a deadline tomorrow. No, that's fine. So we have yeah. Alex Kafteli, then we have Ivans, then Ukraine, and then Marcus. Let's do those four hands. Alex, please. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Always looking forward to, to these sessions. I have a question. I was listening to, um, there was some YouTube about uh, munition production, like artillery munition production between uh, Ukraine and Russia. And they were using this ratio like four to one, like uh, Russia has uh, advantage over Ukraine four to one in terms of artillery. Now, though their artillery is old, and um, Ukraine is better in counter-battery fire, in uh, precision, in range. I was wondering if there is a ratio which you could apply. Uh, because when you have advantage in range, it almost doesn't matter how much more munition your enemy has because they, they cannot reach you, right? Uh, so I'm kind of... Um, a little bit struggling to understand, like why they keep saying that Russia has four to one advantage in munition when, when they are clearly losing this fight, um, at least in terms of counter-battery. Do you know if there is any kind of ratio where precision range and counter-battery effectiveness um, matters, like uh, if there is? Any like similar to, for example, the those who are on offensive tend to lose three times more people than this is all. Of course, um, there are lots of assumptions, but but still, I've heard those ratios. But do you know in artillery if there is a ratio for precision versus um, mass? The thing is that the Russians need the mass because the artillery is so imprecise. That means you need four or five guns firing at one Ukrainian position position to hit something at least. While the Ukrainians, thanks to Panzerhaubitze 2000, is so more precise, especially also because the barrel is adjusted electronically by the computer, that you just need one Panzerhaubitze 2000 to uh, hit a Russian trench pretty much precisely in the middle. The Russian need more mass to achieve a similar result than the Ukrainians. And because the Russians, 
barrels are worn out, the Russians have been bringing their artillery further and further towards the front, right? Uh, the fire always steeper now because that somehow minimally compensates for the worn out barrels, but it doesn't really help. So the Russians have lost self-propelled howitzers five kilometers behind the first line of troops, which is insane because in that area, there should just be mortars but the Russians bring some of their best artillery systems that far up front because they're so worn out that they need to bring them that far up. And I don't know exactly the ratio what the Ukrainians and the Russians have here, but the key, what I look at is the amount of videos that the Ukrainians release of GMLRS and Excalibur every day hitting Russian uh, artillery systems because it shows us that the Ukrainians are concentrating on the Russian artillery and destroying it. And the Russians have absolutely no idea how to counter it, except for bringing always older and always worse artillery forward, hoping that that older guns with the less uh, precise barrels and the horrifically bad uh, ergonomics will somehow stop the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians just spot them and hit them with Excalibur again and again. So. The idea that Russia is winning the artillery fight, if you count the number of shells fired, yes. If you count the effects, which is the destroyed equipment, the Ukrainians are winning it by a wide margin. Because the Ukrainians, if they fire, they hit. If the Russians fire, they just waste a lot of ammunition. The Russians need about probably 10 to 15 artillery shells to have the same effect as one American cluster munition artillery round in killing troops. So uh, this is misleading. If I want to be a propagandist for Russia, I say the Russians are shooting four times more artillery rounds than Ukraines. Ukrainians, yes, that is true. But they hit nothing. And with what the Ukrainians are using, they hit and hit and hit and hit. So long story short, uh, the artillery battle is won by Ukraine. And why I believe that is because Russian bloggers that are on the front line in the South keep complaining nonstop about the losses of Russian artillery for which they have absolutely no count uh, idea how to counter it they bring up guns the guns are spotted within hours by drones and get destroyed the russians bring up more guns and it takes hours and they are destroyed the russians fire artillery shells and after minutes a drone is overhead and a few minutes later an excalibur comes in so russian crews you will see that sometimes you see russian crews filmed by a drone firing three rounds and then the Russian crew runs away and hides in a ditch because they know the Ukrainians will fire back now and destroy probably the gun. Uh, ultimately, ultimately, what I would like to have the Ukrainians is, is a lot more Panzer Hobbitzer 2000, a lot more Krab, a lot more Caesar, a lot more Archer, all those systems because mobile systems, M777s are fantastic guns, right? But you cannot really move them. 
So you have to build cages against the Landsat drones and so on. And also the gun has to be adjusted after every shot, you know, look in the sides, check with the, uh, there's, uh, okay, it's so complicated. I tell you, there's basically, you have to sight the gun into the maps and then, yeah, okay. I, I will do a thread about how to sight guns, but with the M777s and so on, you have to do it by hand and adjust it takes time but if you have a panzer hobitzer 2000 the moment the uh, projectile leaves the barrel the computer in the panzer hobitzer 2000 or in the crab or in the as90 or in the archer and caesar automatically immediately adjusts the barrel and the next round can be put in it takes much less time and it's more precise so what i would like to have seen the europeans go completely nuts on producing artillery systems like panzer hobitzer 2000 and which is a dated system. It's 20 years old, but it's still the best system in the world because it's semi-automatic and has an incredible high rate of fire. And its successor, the um, RCH-155, is a fully automatic system. Um, yes, Archer is similar and Susanna 2 are similar, but the thing is that the RCH-155, you can fire on the go. You don't even have to stop. You can just drive and fire. And the computer system is so precise and so quickly recalibrating and calculating and the recoil is not blocked. The recoil is softened so enough that the whole projectile will raise out, it will fly out of the barrel before any movement from the detonation of the charges has um, um, changed. The, the cat is here and the cat is stepping on my phone because obviously the food is gone. And she is being a pest now because obviously it's like, why didn't you come and give me more food? And now she's putting her ass in my head, face almost. Okay, go down, go down, go. Okay, guys, uh, let's continue with questions. And then I have to go uh, feed the cat or uh, it's again on my phone, the cat. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh you mentioned the 2000 uh, Marines uh, training. You, uh, Axel, mentioned Anzio. You mentioned Korea. And here's the question. If the Ukrainians want to do a beach landing, what kind of equipment can they bring in? For a beach landing, it's different than a beachhead because a bridgehead. A bridgehead, you use pontoon bridges to cross a river. For no, a I mean a, a, a beach landing, like in in the area of Perekop. You mentioned Perekop as yes. a key point. The thing is, for a beach landing, the Ukrainians have to cross a lot of open water, which would give the Russians some warning, and it will be difficult to resupply that. But for a beach landing, uh, in the last Pentagon uh, procurement files, there's a classified $80 million acquisition for the United States from the United States Navy for the uh, from the United States Navy for the Ukrainian Marine Corps. So I assume that someone gave them landing boats, and those landing boats you can bring over the, the Don Danube, the Donau, because there's a channel from the North Sea that goes all to the Black Sea over the Danube. And yes, the Serbs would see it and take pictures, but still you could give the Ukrainians landing boats for an operation of that kind. Um, so 2,000 Marines, half a brigade, that would cause massive problems for the Russians to crush such a beachhead. 
the thing is that uh, I assume before they do that, they would try to cross the Dnieper, Dnieper and establish a bridgehead to be sure that a that they can advance fast enough to the troops that have landed on the beach. Because if the Ukrainians landed troops on the beach, somewhere in Crimea, which probably they can do, 2,000, 3,000 troops they could land and probably supply, uh, if Ukrainian forces then are not yet across the Dnieper River and not yet ready to advance there, there's a high risk that the Russians pull somehow troops together and crush that beachhead. Think of a bridge too far, Operation Market Garden. Um, the divisions, 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne, and the British 1st Paratroopers Division and the Polish Brigade landed to take bridges, right? And Herrock's Corps, the British Corps, had to go down a road to relieve them and establish a line of communications to basically uh, secure the gains and make sure that the Germans couldn't overrun those airheads or landing zones. And so if the Ukrainians make a beach landing in Crimea without uh, a core ready to immediately start moving towards them, to establish a land route to basically help them secure their beachhead with tanks and artillery and supplies, it's an extremely risky operation. So what the Ukrainians might be doing is at the same day that the Ukrainians crossed the Dnieper River in force with three pontoon bridges and 10,000 troops, the same day or the next day, they might land with Marines at Perikop to cut off the key Russian supply line and reinforcement line and ground line of communication and also prevent the Russians from escaping into Crimea. They could definitely do that, but they can only do it when they know that there is Ukrainian forces on the move to come to the aid of that Marines that have landed in Crimea. Would it make sense? Yes, it would make sense. The original Anzio plan was that Anzio, American British divisions, people don't forget it, but the American division that most had most amphibious landings in World War II wasn't on a Marine division, it was the 1st Infantry Division, which landed everywhere. So uh, the most amphibiously experienced American division is not the Marine Corps, it's the 1st Infantry Division. So um, the idea was to land at Anzio, drive to Rome, liberate Rome, cut the German lines of retreat, force the Germans to retreat immediately from the casino front, move north and try to break through the Anzio beachhead. And the idea was that an American, the British Eighth Army, consisting of American, British, Indian, uh, New Zealand, uh, South African, uh, Polish, and in, Indian ahead, Brazilian and Portuguese troops would drive as quickly after the Germans to try to push them like a hammer against the anvil of the American British for forces at Anzio, and then basically between this anvil and hammer, crush them. The problem is that at Anzio, the uh, commander, American general, whose name escapes Lucas. me now, yeah, didn't advance, didn't cut the road, left the Germans all the roads, so the Germans could not, not just only 
bring in reinforcements of that over that roads, the Germans could also basically continue resupplying their front at Casino. So it was a complete uh, disaster. But the idea is if you land, you have to have ready the forces to drive towards the beachhead and help you secure it. Behind the casino front, there were American tank divisions just waiting to go immediately and drive up to Anzio when the Germans began their retreat, even drive through the German lines and crush them and continue past the Germans that retreat towards Anzio to reinforce it. The Germans didn't, the Germans couldn't believe the luck because they had absolutely no combat forces between Rome and Casino, and the Americans would have taken the American British force could have taken every goal of ANSI operation in the first day, but they didn't. The Germans couldn't believe their luck, and ANSI became a bloody stalemate for months, where the Americans and British were basically bottled up in a swamp south of Rome. So if the Ukrainians want to land troops on the Krim Peninsula, yes, it's a good idea, it's a good plan. If it is in combination with an other operation, whose aim must also be to reach Crimea and these two operations, landing in Crimea and operation drive to Crimea need to be in parallel and need to lead to a combination of these two operations at the end. Because if you have them separate, the Russians can crush one or the other and you have a defeat. If you can unite these two operations by driving together, or basically the one is sitting down, the other one drives towards the other one, you will have a victory. An example, when the Americans landed at Incheon in the Korean War, the Marine Corps had looked at Anzio and had seen what happened there. So the Marine Corps didn't land at Incheon and was like, let's sit down and figure out what happened. The Marine Corps immediately went to Seoul to try to liberate the city which would be a defeat for the North Koreans. At the same time, the Marines went inland to cut the North Korean retreat routes. The North Koreans saw all that and knew they had to retreat. And the moment they began to retreat, the United States forces in the perimeter in Busan, mostly the 1st Cavalry Division and the 2nd Infantry Division, which were the first to arrive, immediately began to drive after the North Koreans to try to push them and overrun them, overtake them, drought them. So what didn't work at Anzio worked at Incheon. And the lesson here is that the Ukrainians can do it, but they have to in parallel have the forces ready for the second or the parallel part of the operation, which is to cross the Dnieper and drive at breakneck speed towards Crimea to establish a connection. So yeah, we will see what they're doing. Um, maybe they just use the Marines to cross the Dnieper estuary and establish a southern uh, defense position to secure their landing zone further north on the river. We don't know. But uh, the Ukrainians received definitely equipment for a major amphibious operation that is not just crossing the river, that is more crossing the sea. Because the United States Navy provided them with some equipment. Uh, what the Ukrainians are going to do with it, we don't know. The Ukrainians requested the equipment to cross the empty Kakovka reservoir. They received that equipment. They have done zero attempts to use the equipment. So maybe they just wanted it to make the Russians believe that there will be a crossing and that's why they got the equipment and 
forced the Russians to redeploy forces there. So the Ukrainians might just want to get all this amphibious equipment to threaten the Russians and force the Russians to redeploy forces. It could also be that the Ukrainians have a completely different idea in mind. You know, maybe the Ukrainians will cross the Dnieper, drive to Perekop, drive to Jankoy, liberate all that, and then use those boats to put them through the water and drive to the Azov Sea on the eastern side of Crimea to liberate Berdyansk or Mariupol with the Marines. We don't know. So the Ukrainians are cooking up plans and variants and ideas, and we can speculate here, which is fun. Ultimately, uh, they will do the right thing because the Ukrainians, as we have known, Zaluzhny comes every one, two months over to the Polish border, to Yaroviv, where he and NATO's supreme commander and the commander of the British military, also British armed forces, Admiral Radekin, and the NATO supreme commander is Kaval. It's a name, but he's Kavoli. Just sorry, yeah, because Cavoli, Cavolo is Italian for uh, a vegetable, so uh, Cavoli. Uh, I have to remember his name. So Zaluzny comes over there to Yaroviv and he, for one day briefs the NATO and British military commanders, and then they discuss the feasibility of those plans. So yeah, the Ukrainians are definitely doing plans. They're not doing crazy plans because Zaluzny has to present them through the NATO Supreme Command, and if it's completely loony, the plan, you will tell him not to do it. So the Ukrainians are doing very smart plans, and what they ultimately will do will depend on their intention, the opportunities, and also ultimately on what equipment they receive until then. So we speculate here, but you know, there's not much we can be sure about at this point. But there is a town called Port de Salushny, west of Skabovsk. Skadovsk. Yeah, West of that. Port Salushny. Has, has always been there. That yeah. would be a funny thing. Zaluzhny lands at Zaluzhny. Yeah. Zaluzhny uh, is in Zaluzhny. Uh, the the, uh, the NCU battle is, uh, is interesting. I played that on a uh, PC game. Very, very funny. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Anzio is one of the interesting battles because it shows you when you have a general who is timid how horribly wrong a good plan can unravel if you have an incompetent commander. It's an it's a prime example how a commander, even with a great plan and some of the best battle hardened divisions, one man timid can really, really wreck an operation. Yeah, but fortunately, uh, Lucas was relieved. Truscott took over and became corps commander and solved it. But it um, way, way too late. Yeah, a month into it and it uh, wasted lives on both sides in a strange way. The thing is, there's also the Italian lesson, if you look at the Italian invasion of Greece, because Mussolini went quicker through operational commanders on that front than any other nation went to generals at any front operation in the whole war because Mussolini was like nominating always loyalists and it turned out after one week to be completely incompetent hacks and he had to change the command of four times in the first six weeks of the operation 
And it was a complete, complete disaster for the Italian military, the invasion of Greece in 1940. And also here, if you, com- if you promote generals just because of their loyalty, as Putin has been doing for the last 20 years, loyalty, loyalty above all else, you get a whole bunch of general staff and general bench that are all incompetent, ridiculously stupid, and out of touch with the realities on the ground. So Mussolini and Putin have the same kind of promotional system for generals, and it shows. I was just looking at a, an image of uh, Lucian Truscott standing with Arnold in Italy in 1944, one of the bloodiest and often missed out campaigns there was in the Second World War. And it often reminds us of the methodical approach which uh, the Ukrainians have to take at this point in time. Now, let's go to Marcus, and then we've cleared the hands, Thomas. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my question. I just wanted to... I have two quick questions. Um, it, the solution to... The solution to the problem that we see with the second line of defense, the trenches there, where it's kind of hard to to advance... Um, uh, I'm assuming that that's not completely an issue of them waiting and try to absorb um, Russian forces and destroy them. Um, whether that solution exists and it's a matter of um, of, of implementing it on scale, for example, um, having a lot of Western weapons or drone drone jamming weapons, et cetera, or enough anti-small uh, arms, anti-aircraft fire that can be used for the drones like the Gepard. Um, or simply having planes to bomb. I don't know. Whether you think that that solution exists and it needs to be adapted, or if it's an unsolved problem. Um, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the question. The thing is that the Ukrainians, the easiest way is air power. Ukrainians don't have it, because even if they get the F-16s, there won't be enough. So the Ukrainians have to use drone artillery fire. Right now they use uh, drones to spot the easiest way for the Ukrainians to solve the problem of the Russian second defense line is a 126 ER rocket given to the Ukrainians to use with HIMARS and MLRS and just shell the Russians all into hell. If you have 126 rockets, you can just fire cluster munitions at the Russian trenches from two sides for five minutes, which will kill 90% plus of the Russians in there. If Russians are in uh, dugouts, fine. You fire two, three rounds with M26. You send Ukrainian forces to attack. The first rounds gave you a clear indication if you're on target with your M26. The moment the Russians come out of the dugouts and man their trenches, you hit them with the next three rounds of M26 rockets. People need to understand that the M26 rockets that were um, developed in the Cold War were meant as an annihilation weapon to uh, completely annihilate Russian armored battalions. So um, if you were a Russian armored battalion or mechanized battalion, right, and you came up against an American brigade, which had in the brigades, each one had nine MLRS launchers with each of the launchers loaded with uh, six, two pots of six 
M26, M26 missiles, right? So there were nine launchers, each one carrying six missiles per pot. It's total 12 missiles. Each one of these nines were carrying. Now, if you excuse a second, I need to use a calculator because the number that comes out of this is insane. So you have uh, nine launchers per brigade, right? Each one has 12 missiles. Each missile contains 644 bomblets. That means a Russian battalion with 500 troops that was moving towards a US brigade in the Cold War would get hit out in the open field during the attack within 30 seconds by 69,552 cluster bomblets of the DBICM type. Each Russian soldier would get hit if you compare it with at least 120 cluster units. The whole idea of these M26 rockets was to annihilate in one swoop entire Russian battalions, which basically meant since the battalions were spaced out, the assumption of the US military was we can, each American brigade has one of these batteries with nine launchers, and both American Corps had artillery brigades completely filled with M270s with these rockets. So the idea was that if the Russians come, the cavalry companies of the brigades will spot for Russian battalions. Once they are spotted, the brigade artillery battery will get ready while the artillery battalion of the, I know the division, sorry, the division, the division. The division artillery will get ready to hit the Russians with conventional artillery, high explosive shells. So the Russian battalion stops to wait out the artillery fire. Once they're stopped, the battery, the division battery of MLRS will hit the Russians with nearly 70,000 cluster munitions and annihilate. Afterwards, one battalion will move forward from American battalion and kill the rest of the remaining Russians. Soviets, Soviets, sorry. That was the plan. Now, the thing is, if Ukraine would get these rockets of which the Americans should have some 100,000 to 300,000 in stock, can you imagine what would happen if suddenly each Russian trench has like 644 cluster munitions raining down? Uh, if the Russians are in their bunkers, quite a few will survive. If the Russians are not in their bunkers, all of them will be dead. The M26 rockets were developed as the closest thing to a weapon of mass destruction that was not banned. You could only kill that many people in the quickest time with poison gas or a nuclear weapon. So the M26 is the most destructive weapon in the American arsenal because of the amount of territory it covers, the amount of really brutal shrapnel it creates, because that is not shrapnel that is um, 
equally formed. These are metal pieces that are all different, and each one of them rips through flesh in a different pattern. But you have to think this is kind of like a someone is shooting at you with a, a baseball and the baseball disintegrates in front of you into metal shrapnels that slice through your body and create holes while spinning and shredding it. So these are horrific weapons. And they were developed because the Soviets had so many more troops in the Cold War than the West. And the Ukrainians got GPICM artillery ammunition, which is nice, but the amount of bomblets they carry is much, much more. It's a tenth of the amount of bomblets of an M26 rocket. And the M26 rocket not only carries 10 times more ammunition, bomblets than a artillery shell, it's also faster to deploy. And since you have six in the HIMARS or 12 on the MLRS rocket launcher, you can bring onto target and such an immense mount immense amount of death and maiming and destruction and annihilation. This, this weapon, nobody in the civilian world has idea what this weapon can do to... Uh, you have a football stadium, you hit it with a round of 12 of them, you have a football stadium of 80% dead and 20% maimed. So this is a wildly destructive weapon. And the reason the Americans haven't given it to the Ukrainians yet is because not that there are some submunitions lying around, but you know, uh, the United States used 10,000 of those during the first Gulf War. And Iraqis feared nothing as much as these rockets because they came in silently and suddenly everything around you was exploding with shrapnel and everyone who was caught in that steel rain, this is the steel rain, Everyone that was caught in debt had body parts shredded away and inner organs turned to goo. So that weapon, the States is not liking to give them to Ukraine because some human rights organization are bitching about some uh, dots that are lying around afterwards. The, Ukraine, the United States is not really giving this to Ukraine because this is the closest to a massacre weapon that the world has ever seen. People for that this was the most common artillery ammunition rocket in all of NATO's arsenal in the 80s. And if you ask yourself why, because after the first tests, every NATO general was in love with that weapon, because this was the weapon to defeat the superior Soviet forces, superior in number. This was the weapon for NATO to win a war conventionally against the Soviet Union. So the M26 rocket. That's why I also have now been saying lately that Ukraine should get it, because these rockets, the destructive power is just beyond anything you can imagine. And you don't want to see the wounds. Some Russians have posted the wounds of injured that were near an artillery DPICM round that came down. And there's channels, channels, flesh and bone and everything basically sliced away on the side of faces or skulls or arms that are holed out. So that's a horrific weapon, but it's an effective weapon. And necessary. And the combination. It's necessary. Yes. 
And the combination of being so effective and so horrific is why it's also a terrorizing weapons. The Iraqis immediately surrendered when American troops came because they just didn't want to get hit once more by an M26. So why Ukraine should get them is because nothing will help them better to devastate Russian trenches, Russian reinforcements, and psychologically, completely, completely make the Russian soldiers lose their minds. This is the machine gun, was World War I the weapon that shocked the world. The M26 is the rocket, is the rocket, is the weapon that will shock the world when it's used in Gulf War. We didn't see it because the Iraqis carried away their dead before Western press arrived and saw it. And their stories, you know, nobody cared for the stories of Iraqi soldiers about these weapons. But, you know, right now, if the Russians get hit by that, we would see the videos and the world would see what uh, an amazing engineering feat American engineers in the 80s came up with to win a war against the Soviet Union for NATO. So if I can have a weapon that I want the Ukrainians to get, it's the M26 rockets and 100,000 police. All righty. Marcus, do you have a follow-up? And then we close it out from there. <clears throat> yeah. So Thomas has sold me. Um, I guess I'll put the pre-order in for this M26 rocket. Holy crap. Um, so that means, Marcus, you're we... going to call your congressman, right? I'm Canadian, but I will call my MP if we have them in Canada. Um, but my, my concern then is, just ethically speaking, we could save, there's so many social media posts of people mourning dead Ukrainian soldiers over and over and over that we see streaming through. And the solution exists on a rack somewhere in, in, in Georgia, maybe? Like, that's crazy. We, we have to break the stalemate on this. This is insane. That's all I wanted to say was we got to do something because there's so many Ukrainians dying. And if we have a solution already for this, it is unethical to allow those people to die. Exactly. Fully agree. I mean, the thing is that the Russian soldiers will die. But the moment you invade another country, nobody had any pity with the German troops in France when they got hit by the U.S. Air Force, United States Army Air Force. So... The Russian soldiers, we cannot have pity on them. If they want to surrender, please do it. But um, the M20, I mean, the Iraqi soldiers that were hit by the M26 in the Gulf War in 1991 had lived through eight years of war against Iran, where they were bombarded with cluster munitions, where the Soviet cluster munitions, where they were bombarded with poison gas, where they were bombarded with nerve agents, where they were bombarded by artillery. And those Iraqis had eight years of experience of constantly the fear of artillery and mortars and human wave attacks and poison gas attacks and nervous uh, nerve agent attacks. And what broke these eight year, these veterans of eight years of war, what broke them was the M26 rocket. It broke them. So now you know why this weapon, why the United States is sitting on that weapon because they don't really want anyone to film a battlefield after it, this, this weapon went through it. And I, I would love to see such videos because it would be of Russians and the images that these will convey to other Russian troops is that you have to surrender now because once the Ukrainians aim that weapon at you, 
your two choices in life remain dying right now or being a main cripple that will slowly die a waste away in the next days. So the Russians, this weapon bringing in, uh, there's a reason why um, most European countries destroyed that weapon and were happy about it because, for example, most European nations had pretty much qualms about using that because they knew what kind of the countries that have no qualms about this weapon are Turkey, Greece, South Korea, and the United States, and Israel and Egypt. They have immense amount of that in their stocks. And I hope Ukraine can get 100,000 or 200,000 of those because this is the last big weapon that the Ukrainians could receive that really would improve their combat capabilities and help devastate the Russians, especially Russians that flee or Russians that move over land reinforcements. The the Americans are sitting on it still, but I want it that it's given to Ukraine as soon as possible. Moral questions aside, we have to help the Ukrainians who are the victims. And if you see someone being attacked and it's a victim, you don't go around first thinking what kind of help you should give them. You help them. And M26 is what can help Ukrainians. And right now, this is the moment to give it to them. Because we save Ukrainian lives and we shorten this war and it will not be a pleasant sight, but to shorten this war is the most humane thing we can do. Cut the Gulf War, three days, and the Iraqis had all surrendered because they just didn't want to see any more M26 over their heads. All righty. Thomas, thank you very much. This has been yet another tremendous uh, ride substantially longer than we would have planned. But then again, we did say that we'll do this for up to four hours. Mere grazie. Thank you very much. Vielen herzlichen Dank. Welcome. Time here. For anyone here is listening, I will be in the next weeks in Vienna, Warsaw, and Vienna and Munich for work. And I will keep up with Ukraine as much as I can, but I have to do presentations and uh, chats. I will do also a interview in Warsaw with Uh, news organizations there so you will see that it will be in English and until then I hope that Biden that Dark Brandon which is a really iconic nickname for him now that Dark Brandon finds it in himself to give Ukraine attackams, Abrams, Bradleys and a lot of M26 rockets because M26 rockets need to be fired soon or the United States is going to have to spend a billion or more to have them decommissioned and I don't know if you want to spend a billion on decommissioning something that can save 10,000 of Ukrainian lives. So from my side I would say M26 and now thank you everyone for listening I wish everyone a good evening and I wish Ukraine a speedy and quick victory and us in Europe and peace afterwards Thank you everyone. Excellent Thank you Thomas Großes Kino wieder mal. Herzlichen Dank. Thank you very much, uh, everybody. And uh, give a big hand to Thomas Tyner, who has been joining us for the past four hours on a friendly Tyner sit-rep. <laughs>